0: Psychology in Seattle. Hey, deserving listeners! Today we have a special guest on the podcast, Christy Forrester, who uh, has volunteered to come on the show to talk about her schemas. And uh, for some of you, uh, you've been reaching out to me because I put out the call for volunteers to. Uh, have some more profiles of schemas. You know, I did the deep dives that was just for patrons where I explained schema therapy for four hours. And then I've been uh, using kind of a modified version of it uh, to uh, walk through with Bob, walk through with uh, Umberto, and now we're going to walk through it with Christy. I think it's a powerful model. I think it's very helpful, not only personally, but also clinically. And also just understanding your partners, understanding maybe the confusing behaviors that they do to you, you know, whenever your spouse does something where you're just like, I don't get why they don't really understand what I'm going through. I don't get why they, they self-sabotage in this way. I don't get why they keep doing this thing over and over again. And they can't really see why they're doing it, even though when I look at them, I'm like, why are you doing that? It doesn't make any sense. I think schema therapy is a excellent way of actually understanding that and but we're talking about humans and so when i walked through the model i kept thinking the real kind of in-depth understanding of this model comes from hearing people actually describe their schemas and how they actually operate in the world and you know the the way in which they cope and the, the and them reflecting on their self-sabotage and maybe where that comes from because it's easier to say things like well you know, that person's just self-sabotaging and then you walk up to him and you say, you know, just stop that, right? (laughs) He said, just stop self-sabotaging. It's so much deeper and more complicated than that. And when you actually hear people talk about, um, you know, maybe where they're coming from, you're like, oh, okay, I can see why that would be a lifelong struggle to change. And you might not ever really change it. It's just a matter of kind of coming to grips with it, managing Mm -hmm. it, uh, maybe apologizing for it afterwards or something. But anyway, so, Christy has volunteered to come on the podcast to talk about it, which is great, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting into it. Um, so, this is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Christy?
1: I'm Christy Forster, and I'm a therapist, couple and family therapist. Uh, in Seattle? In Seattle. And um, I have an office on Lake Union and one in West Seattle.
0: Okay you are a podcast listener and you've been on the podcast before during some of our live shows yes. and you've also been on the podcast years ago to talk about your experience in my family of origin class correct if you're, so if you want to listen back to that that would have been 2012 or 13 or
1: 2013, something 2013
0: 2014 okay. maybe cuz yeah and so uh, so yeah Christy's a fantastic therapist in Seattle uh, she's one of the uh, few graduates that I've worked with who pretty much instantly filled up with clients because of how um, how good she is as a therapist. How good she listens to people. How hard she works. Um, she's uh, a, the sort of quintessential therapist in that um, you know she'll discover a theory and she'll be like, "Ooh, I want to I want to learn more about that." Wow. I'm going to start using it with my clients. That's what I have always done. It's like I'd learn a new theory and then that week all my clients would get that model. Oh,
1: definitely. Yeah.
0: And so, uh, schema therapy is something that you're getting into just like I am recently. And so, mm-hmm. all right. So this episode is for patients of the podcast, uh, for a number of reasons. One, because it's pretty clinical and I think that it uh, deserves to be, um, sort of, uh, you know, relegated to patients, but also, uh, when we're we're gonna get into some personal stuff with you, Christy and mm-hmm. I I'd, I'd rather have it be limited to a 1,000 people as opposed to 7 billion possible people to listen <laughs> to. It just seems like it should be a more of an intimate affair. Yeah. Uh, so if you want to hear this full episode, uh, you, you have to become a patron of the podcast. Um, if you're not a patron, you're gonna this episode is going to end pretty soon. But if you want to hear the full hour or two conversation between me and Christy and all the other conversations about schema therapy, you have to be, become a patron by going to patreon.com. When you become a patron, you'll get instructions on how to access this full episode and all the other episodes on schema therapy and all the episodes on attachment therapy and all the episodes on all the other topics that we go into. So become a patron. Do it now. Okay, Christy. So um, I'm curious, like, where you think this conversation is going to go just from the onset Mm. between you and me?
1: Um. Gosh, it's funny because I've been thinking through ever since your schema podcast, The Deep Dive, um, I think I might have translated the majority of it, um, transcribed the majority of it. Other. <laughs> I'm creating worksheets, and so I'm really interested in, like, for me, I think what's going to happen is we're going to be looking at possibly some of my needs, my unmet needs, and then honing in on what some of the schemas I have. Mm-hmm. might be, yeah. why they got there, how I cope with them, um, and then maybe how I've healed from some of them is one of my hopes to share, because I think there's a lot that I recognize that I'm like, oh, yeah, definitely me. And it's I've been interested in reflecting on how do I cope with these and which ones have been easier to cope with or change the way I see the schema.
0: Right. So yeah. when... I was talking about this various service schemas. There's 18 mm-hmm. in uh, the deep dive. Which one really stuck out to you?
1: Um, emotional deprivation.
0: So tell us about that. What's, it, what's the lived experience lived uh, of experience. someone who, who has that emotion? So, this is um, the uh, schema that's developed. Well, let's start from the beginning. So, what emotional need do you think you had growing up that every human has Mm -hmm. that was not met fully or adequately Mm. that led to you developing that schema?
1: Um, I would say probably attunement and some of the empathy pieces um, that led to feeling emotionally deprived. Inconsistency, you know, not really. My mom worked a lot. She was very loving, but uh, my mom worked a lot, but my dad was not really a present individual. Hmm. So, you know, before they divorced, there was a lot of hours on the couch hungover, not really participating in life with us. Um, And so then he moved out after the divorce, and I always kind of wanted that connection and could never really find it through my dad. Um, And then also I think um, I had some abuse in my life, I don't know how much that's separate in looking in the mistrust and abuse schema Hmm. or does it come into play with the emotional deprivation. Yeah, it could. Um, But I do think that to some degree I learned as a child to get by without that emotional support.
0: Do you think you would have had this schema without having been abused? No, (laughs) Hmm.
1: actually Um, I think that the abuse put me into a position where I thought, well, if I get close to someone, someone's going to hurt me. Um, And I really want to be close with them because I want to have that need for emotional connection met. But what if they're after something different? Or what if um, I can't read whether or not they're a safe person? And so I did a lot of avoiding and distancing. Um, how did you do that as a kid? You know, I think I played by myself a lot, hmm. you know. Um, although it's weird, I have a lot of weird mixtures. Some of the things I'm interested in, this schema therapy, is like how when one area of my life made it harder for me, how I overcompensated in another area. Like, for example, I did feel emotional deprivation, and I did feel um, mistrust, mistrust. And I also felt concern about abandonment. Um, we moved around a lot, like different houses all the time. If we were in a house for like six months or nine months, you know, that long, I would start asking my my mom or my parents, like, when are we going to move? Because Mm -hmm. we are always moving. And so that put me in a different situation every year at school where I had to say like, okay, I'm the new kid, I either sink or swim, (laughs) you know, only got so much time. So I would jump into relationships with new friends. But I knew there wasn't going to be any consistency there. And I think that's part of the emotional deprivation I noticed in my life, too, is it's not that there haven't been people along the way that have been kind to me. It's that they're so broken up and there's no continuity around. I have one person or several people who know me and care about me and demonstrate that for long periods of time. Right. Yeah.
0: Interesting. So, uh, okay. So you have that early life, early life experience moving around a lot. Your mom, although loved you. So, so this is one of the things that I think is important for people to understand is that, uh, When you are first asked the question, "How was your childhood?", you might say something like, "Oh, it was great," because Mm -hmm. because unlike Christie's background, you might not have been abused, and so you're just like, "Well, um, I like my parents; they're great people. Mm -hmm. They uh, were always nice to me. Um, You know, I lived in a safe neighborhood. Our family joked around a lot, Mm -hmm. and everything seemed fine." But uh, that could be true. But there's another question of minute to minute, as you were zero to five, were your parents really noticing of your emotional state and reacting in an attuned manner to you? Now, this doesn't mean your parents have to be constantly there, but it, means, it just means that um, age appropriate. So when you're zero, they're constantly there. When you're two, they're there 80% of the time. When you're four, they're there 30% of the time or something. But you get a sense growing up that my parents notice me, they, they, uh, and they're, they're attuned to me. They, they're there to help me. Mm-hmm. And if I'm having a freakout, I know that they will be there. Uh, I'm pretty sure they're going to be there right away to help me. Mm-hmm. Or if they're not, as, you know, as soon as I see them, I can tell them how I feel or express it, mm-hmm. and they'll be there, and they'll, it won't feel bad to me. Um, you can have very loving parents, but if they're not around, mm-hmm. then you, you don't get that need met. Uh, you could have very uh, nice parents, but if they're not, but if they grew up without a lot of attunement in their life growing up, then it's not even on their radar. You know, when when you're when you are, you know, if you fall down the stairs and you're crying, most parents will come running. Mm-hmm. But what about those moments where you? Are uh, bored, or you're you don't have very good self-esteem, or you're frustrated with a toy, or you're frustrated with your sibling, or you're frustrated with a friend, or your friend hurt your feelings, or you're on the uh, you know on the jungle gym at the park and you feel like an outsider. Um, are your parents there to notice that? You know, I guess that's a good example. Like you're four years old, you're at the park and say your mom's there uh, on a bench and you're feeling, you you enter the zone and other kids kind of know each other and you feel like um, the outsider and you're you're very conscious of that and self-conscious like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. And it things don't go very well. And you're there for 45 minutes and you try to dip in a little bit, but you don't, things don't go up. Well. You know, pretty common scenario for slightly introverted, slightly anxious four-year-old kid. Um, you walk off the playground and you're not tantruming, you're not freaking out, but the parent says, oh, I'm glad you had a fun time, and you get in the car and you drive home. Now to you, as a four-year-old, you're not you're not conscious of what's happening. You're not like, my mom didn't recognize my feelings. You're, you're too young to reflect that way. Uh, what we need in that moment is for a parent to to notice something and say like, Oh, I noticed that you had a good time, but I also noticed that you felt like maybe you weren't really quite fitting in. And let's say the four-year-old is like, no, mom, I fit in fine. <laughs> but but the, the parent says, oh, okay, I, yeah, I, I, I think you're doing really well. But I don't know, it just kind of seemed like there was a little moment there where it looked like to me, and maybe I'm wrong, that it just kind of looked like you felt like you, you know you wanted to be more a part of the group and... Uh, and it it, 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 you just didn't know them, and they didn't know you very well, mm-hmm. and maybe the kid just says, "Well, I don't know, Mom." You know, so the inner, so the, the the reaction from the kid isn't like, "Oh, thank you for noticing my feelings, Mommy." Right. Like it's not that, but the kid in that moment gets the sense like, "Oh, she's paying attention. She cares." I feel like crap right now because I was rejected or it felt rejecting from this group or I don't feel good enough to be in that group. But my mom's telling me this other kind of version of the story. That's a little bit, that's a lot better than the version I have in my soul right now, which is that I really wanted to connect and things didn't really work out. Huh? I don't think that's right. I'm pretty sure I'm a piece of crap and I didn't fit in, but my mom just has a different story. You know, it, over time, you do this every day because <laughs> kids have a lot of ups and downs throughout the day. You get this experiential, visceral, neurological experience that people care and that they're there for you and that you can even express yourself and take a risk, put yourself out on the limb and someone will catch you. And I'm good, and other people are good, and my feelings are okay, mm-hmm. and I'm worth it, mm-hmm. and other people are good, and I can take care of them. Like This is the the long-term human uh, sort of conundrum. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's say you have the—just to put a fine point on it, you have another uh, mom who cares, basically, loves, basically— but just, again, for the way she was raised, the kid goes through that experience. She doesn't notice. Mm-hmm. The kid goes home feeling like crap, and that, and you just rinse and repeat that experience. Mm-hmm. And the kid just slowly internalizes and thinks, like, I'm a bad person. I'm not worth it. I don't want to go to the, uh, the playground anymore. I don't want to uh, – I'm pretty sure I can't – and this is somewhat subconscious. I'm pretty sure I can't even express my feelings because no one will notice – No one cares. What's the point? And then you develop this schema, which I've reworded for my own words because I I just, the schema therapy model has a different kind of wording that is a little clunky to me. So I reworded it as, you know, people don't care about me is the emotional deprivation schema. Um, If you agree with any of these statements, then you might have the schema. I've never had a consistent person to depend on. Is that, do you agree or disagree with that, Christy?
1: Um. I would say most of the time I didn't except for my mom. Okay. But even then that was kind of, it depended on her mood. Okay. You know. So
0: inconsistent. A lot of inconsistency. So someone you could depend on but not consistent. Not
1: consistent. And there was a lot of like, like what you were just describing was like, I mean, I I realized too, like looking back, like she did the cry it out method, you know, so like if I was crying in my crib, they would just leave me Um, when I got older and started playing you know if I was got hurt or something um, happened especially if I got hurt the saying was like don't come crying to me if you got hurt roughhousing so there was a lot of like a lack of empathy and I think kind of maybe an inflated sense of what I was capable of handling or something from their perspective so there was a lot of like that punishing or ignoring whenever I had Something bad going on. Right.
0: And the uh, one way to look at it is that one parents, your parents were bad people, which isn't probably accurate. The other way of looking at it is that it's a cultural thing in that, uh, you know, you grew up in Kansas. You're Caucasian, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Northwest European people uh, for the past thousands of years, I'm guessing, have been um, traditionally more. Um, of the sort of people who want to raise people with good work ethics, who are independent, Very. who can do things on their own. Mm-hmm. And also you have 1970s America <laughs> and the cried out method. They didn't call it that. They just called that parenting. Ah, I mean, that just, was what you're supposed to do. Just ignore this
1: child's needs. Yeah.
0: To, <sighs> to let your, which just, it just sounds horrific to me. To let your nine month old or, you know, one year old uh, uh, not experience that crying mm-hmm. point where they're in a crib and then they just give up. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, parenting's complicated. But, but anyway, the point is, is that culturally speaking, there was this general understanding that even if you, to be a loving parent, you shouldn't spoil your right. kid.
1: You should and, help them figure out how to do it by themselves. Yeah,
0: figure it out, you know, but it's, but we understand now it's like, well, I'm three, hmm. so uh how is it possible I could figure it out on my own? A little bit of help here would be nice um and uh so so not only probably did your parents get modeled that very hands off parenting and emotional deprivation to themselves mm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but uh and so they were gonna do that anyway, but also you know, culture supported that
1: totally. I also wonder, like if I picked up on that really early. Because literally the first sentence that I said repeatedly was me do myself. Like whatever. When you were a kid. Yeah. Like that was my first sentence. I could string together. Before
0: you could grammatically understand it was wrong. Me do myself.
1: I will do this by myself. Leave me alone. Wow. Because I think that some of the messages I got in the crying out, like I remember it being in school at Antioch and one of the professors asked about if any parents did that method. and. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, was your response to, like, really be upset about that? Or... And I said, no. I think I, I think I surrendered to it. I was just like, well, nobody's coming, so I might as well entertain myself in my crib or whatever. Like, I never, It just got to the point where I was just like, I don't expect anyone to. So you
0: remember Crib.
1: Yeah, like, it's funny, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I I actually did one of those sensory deprivation tanks where you, like, float. And it's such an interesting experience. It takes away all things for your consciousness to bounce off of. And I had this moment where I could feel the crib. I was in the crib. I could feel like I was a little sweaty. I could feel the little cotton outfit on me I could see the little white bars in the crib it was like I went back to this crib space and no one was there it was just me but I don't know how my mind went to that because it was so such a strong memory Hmm. I've never accessed it before like that but yeah there was a lot of like I think I just picked up on the general concept because my mom's family I think they're there were four kids, and my grandma was a teacher, but my grandpa was a abusive, alcoholic, military, musician, man. Um, and everybody kind of had to fend for themselves and figure it out. Yeah, And I think my mom just figured that's just how, you know. And in some ways, even though I'd, I wish that I hadn't had that message, that I wasn't, I wish that I hadn't gotten the message that they didn't have the time for my feelings or that they weren't going to come and help me. I love how self-reliant I am. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a good thing to take away from it. But there were so many things, like even my dad would say, this was my dad's stuff. He was kind of harder on me. Um, if I was trying to talk to him about something, he would he would say, I will give you $5 if you shut up. Jeez. Yeah. He just didn't want to hear me talk at all. So he would offer to pay me. He was like, if you can be quiet for 10 minutes or 20 minutes, then I'll give you money. And I remember being like, I don't, I mean, when I was a kid, I'd be like, yeah, ooh, money, candy. I could buy stuff, you know. I was kind of excited about it. But on the other side, I was like, this hurts that you don't want to hear. You don't want to hear me that much that you would pay me to go away.
0: Yeah, that's awful. Right? Yeah.
1: Right? And it's so strange because in my mind I I never thought of it as awful. I just thought, "Oh, he was playing a game with me." But it, it sticks. I mean, I'm 46 now, so I still remember that and talk about it frequently. So clearly it really didn't feel very good.
0: Yeah. You know? That notion.
1: Mm-hmm. You know?
0: And kids have almost no ability to manage their feelings and so Mm-mm. the depths of their pain is so much deeper than uh, we are typically accustomed to which mm-hmm. I kind of remember going up for myself is like the emotional ups and downs that I had when I was mm-hmm. a you know three or four year old were like 10 times deeper than I experience today
1: oh yeah it's a big yeah I remember those feelings <laughs> yeah uh,
0: okay so other statements let me know if you agree Generally speaking, no one has ever really been there to meet my emotional needs.
1: And that's a tough one because I would say not on a consistent basis. And I have friends, you know, but mostly most people, I think the lack of consistency within my family and my friendships and even romantic relationships throughout my life, it's just been so chopped up.
0: Well, tell me that, but nobody
1: so- really knows what my emotional needs are because they're never there for more than an hour or two.
0: Okay.
1: You know, it's like very broken up.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is you want to acknowledge that some people are nice yeah. and, and caring. There
1: have been some. But overall, no. But overall, no. Yeah. Overall, not. You know, And I think that's one of the things, and I don't know if it's okay to go into this now, but like that's one of the things that I think abuse... And the things I've experienced in my life have um, set me up to struggle with more around emotional deprivation, because I'll just be very honest, that's kind of my (laughs) M.O., but um, I was molested as a child, probably between four and late into five, kind of went on repeatedly, And that created a lot of, like, suspicion of other people and do they want to hurt me? Um, What was it that I did to make that person want to do that to me? Was I too attractive? I used to worry about, am I attractive to my dad? Should I wear, like, long sleeve? I would wear, like, long sleeve and long nightgowns and things just because I didn't know what it was that caused that. And then going forward, having more unfortunate experiences later in life like sexual assault um, I think that I didn't want to get close to anybody you know I just was like my coping mechanism was probably more on the avoid getting close because it was too scary so it kind of again perpetuated the pattern of not getting my emotional needs met but it was protection
0: right the The insidiousness of trauma and relational trauma is that it creates these schemas Mm -hmm. of, well, people don't really care and mistrust around, well, why would I even try to depend on others? Because even when I do, Mm -hmm. they're either inconsistent, but at worst, they're actually like harmful to me. Mm. Um, And so uh, I give up. Mm-hmm. and I, I need to be independent. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the approach helps when we're young, but when we emerge into the world and we have more power over our lives and can mm-hmm. actually engineer our lives um, in, in a lot of different ways, mm-hmm. uh, we retain that schema, and it uh, uh, prevents us from getting our needs met. Yeah. Shoots we'll,
1: yourself in the foot, like you say.
0: Right, and then the need continues. you know you really need that need to be met from zero to five. Mm -hmm. You also very much need it from five to 95. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you're 25 and you're avoiding being close to people, it's not like you're in a stasis of, um, like, uh, sort of stability, you know, say the entire year of your 25th birthday, you were, uh, you know pathologically independent Mm -hmm. and mostly avoidant of other people and but doing okay on your own like succeeding in life in Mm -hmm. whatever way you want to but that entire year Mm -hmm. of day in and day out not getting your needs met in terms of um, someone knowing you being Mm -hmm. attuned to you caring being Mm -hmm. there for Mm -hmm. you consistently someone Mm -hmm. you could really depend on Mm -hmm. that's just another year of trauma Mm -hmm. and
1: we're talking more like 18 to 20 years of that in my right. life you know
0: so you pile that on up till 46 and yeah. and it's been many many years of that need not being met mm-hmm. um, and part of it in your adult life is do, to the mechanism that you developed early in life to cope with the situation while you didn't have power. You know, when you're, when you're four, you can't be like, eh, I think I'll have other parents.
1: Right. Um, I'm moving out.
0: When you're 25, you can say, eh, I think I'll have a different romantic partner. Right. Or, eh, I think I'll have different friends. Or, eh, I think I'll quit this job and find a boss who doesn't actually abuse me. Right. Um, When we're adults, we have that power for the most part. Um, when we're kids, we don't, and so when we're kids, we have to develop that coping mechanism because we're trapped.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: When we're adults, we're not always trapped, um, but we're trapped in our schema, which continues to abuse us. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I think that's the power of this of this model. So another statement: um, I've gotten enough love, or I, I, see, no, I haven't gotten enough love and nurturance from others. Do you agree or disagree with that
1: one? I kind of agree. Yeah i have, I always feel so bad at agreeing though, I because i 'm just like, but there have been so many people along the way who've given me love and nurturance, but it 's just not enough
0: yeah i mean there's <laughs> other schemas involved uh, probably like self sacrifice or oh yeah. or the pleaser uh, yes. schema where those are kicking in as you 're even answering these questions i'm just like well i don 't want uh, you know you're referencing you know a dozen people who
2: you mm-hmm. recognize
0: consciously as being caring loving people, mm-hmm. and you don't want to and you know they've tried to be there for mm-hmm. you, but, and you don't want to hurt their feelings, but at the same time, you absolutely agree that you haven't gotten enough love and, and nurturance
2: from yeah other people.
0: um for most of my life i've never I've never been someone's main relationship, is that true?
1: Oh, yeah, probably wow. like yeah, I mean, out of forty six years, I would say. Uh, maybe I've been in relationships, romantic relationships, where I felt primary. Um, probably about eight years. Okay. Maybe.
0: But the rest of the time.
1: The rest of the time, I've always been single. Yeah. Yeah, and I would. I, I'm always interested in what what caused me to default to that. Like, I know my part in it. I look at that a lot, but. I mean, I can even recall being in like fifth or sixth grade when I first really started thinking, hey, I kind of like boys, you know, I want them to kind of like me. Um, Whenever it even started then, like whenever one of my girlfriends maybe liked somebody I liked, I never like, I just would always acquiesce like, oh, you go, you know, that's for you. That's not for me. Like, there's always something that I gave up, I just gave up. Or I would pick people who really weren't someone I could be in a relationship to have closeness with.
0: Like who? Uh,
1: like my best friend in high school. Um, I had a big crush on him, Jason. And we had a really special friendship. Like, it was really unique, um, but it never turned into anything emotionally, um, romantically, um, but he would get, his girlfriends would get mad because I was always around and he would say like, don't make me choose between you and Christy cause I'll pick Christy. He always kind of, I felt special to him. We were a tight, tight knit, but it was never going to be what I really wanted it to be. And I think I kind of wanted it to be like that. Hmm. And it's an unresolved thing. I still have dreams about him. Like, and they'll go, it'll be really interesting. Like, I still, like, long for wondering what would have happened if I'd actually been open to it, Mm. is really what I'm thinking. I typically would pick people that was like, "Mm, that person, I really like them. I'm just going to crush on them, but I'm never going to be with them because safety.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. So it's hard to know exactly what would have right. happened if you didn't have this schema and this need to cope with that. Right. But it's possible that what would have happened, there's a number of different sort of possibilities. One is is that you would have pursued him. Mm-hmm. Another possibility is you would have been like, well, uh, this person meets a lot of my needs. He's a good friend. Mm-hmm. And maybe even I have a little crush on him. but. Uh, but I don't think he likes me in that way mm-hmm. or I don't think it's going to work out at the very least. He has a girlfriend right now.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so I recognize my need for romantic closeness that I'm not going to get from this person. Right. I need to find someone else and right. I deserve it. And I mm. trust that I can find it. Mm. I trust that other people care. Mm. I trust that things will work out.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, nope, nope, nope. and
0: as I'm approaching someone, <laughs> um, you know, uh, let's see what this happens. Uh, And uh, when we have schemas that say, you know that people really just don't care Mm -hmm. about you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Was it to you or was it to everyone? Like, what did you think? People don't care about me or did you think people just don't care about anybody?
1: Oh, no, I thought people didn't care about me.
0: So you saw people caring about each other.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I just couldn't figure out what it was. What was the magic thing that like made me get into that circle, you know? was a strange i was but i was also always that girl in high school my girlfriends would be like oh you know oh my god i just broke up with jim or whatever i gotta find a new boyfriend right away and they were like super obsessed with that and i was like why do you think like that like i could care like i like having crushes on people but i am not interested in just having a boyfriend for a boyfriend's sake or mm. I just wasn't always the least interested in pursuing things that." Mm. And I would always default. Like, if someone else, if there looked like there was ever any interest my friend had for somebody else, I would back off. You're like, okay, that's all you. Hmm. Almost in a relieved way,
0: right? Because the so getting into the coping strategies, you know, and you've been using the language surrender, avoidance, and overcompensation. Mm-hmm. So the avoidance uh, compensation or the avoidance coping is to is to do that is to be like.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: uh to find any excuse to shut down the motivational or behavioral sequences to actually enact trying to get that need met so in mm-hmm. your heart and that's always the key that I like about this model that I don't think is emphasized enough in even in its own language is that you know you're 17 years old and in your heart you have a deep need for mm-hmm. uh, romantic and um physical and Emotional and nurturance in mm. your uh, nurturing, nurturance in your life, and and you you feel it for mm-hmm. the most part, mm-hmm. and so you um, you like a fella at school, and you're like, oh, and in your heart, you're like, maybe this relationship with this person will will get my needs met, mm-hmm. and then your friend says, yeah, I was, yeah, I might have a little crush on him. Well, so in that moment.
2: Mm hmm.
0: There is this there's this, uh, there's this th- thing that happens unconsciously where it's just like uh, for for someone who is not emotionally neglected growing up, mm-hmm. they might go like, OK, um, I, I care about my friend, um, but I feel like I've identified I, I dibs that person, one, <laughs> two. Um, you know my friend she's just kind of talking off the top of her head right and she's got other people that she can could connect with i'm more i'm very much more selective i've i've i think this plus i'm selfish and i deserve it and i don't care i don't care <laughs> about my friend you know everyone for their own here you know god like, i
1: wish i'd been like that i, I, I like
0: this person i'm not even <laughs> saying to my friend like look i said him first so you know right. back off you right. know um and uh
1: I think I would kind of almost enjoy, not enjoy, but find a home in the shame. Like, yeah, of course that's not going right, to happen for me. Right, so that's a me. surrender part. I'd of be it. like, yeah, I guess that's just how it is for me.
0: Right, so the surrender part of it is I surrender to the notion that yeah. uh, uh, I'm never going to get my needs met. Yep. And I don't even really deserve to get my needs met. Nope. Like
1: These people clearly do, but not me.
0: Yeah, there's something different. What? What was it, like, if you could really think <laughs> about it, like, because you would see they deserve to have their needs mm,
1: met, mm. but
0: I don't deserve to have my like
1: You know, this is interesting because I've never thought about this in this way, but like, uh, I th- the first thing that comes to mind is that my, my, my dad was a big fat hater. And so like when my mom and dad divorced, there were a lot of problems and reasons, of course, behind that. But one of them was my dad's, like, pure hate towards anyone who was overweight. Um, And uh, my mom had gained weight after kids and had a hard time losing it. And that, that was part of the reason the divorce kind of happened, is she was tired of being made to feel not important, and he was really critical of that. It was also really critical of me growing up, even though I wasn't like ever at a place where I was an overweight kid, I was just a normal kid, my dad would really hone in on that. So like if I ate like a dessert or anything, he would be like, you're fat, you should go jump on the trampoline for an hour to burn off that dessert you just ate. Yeah. Wow. And or run around the house, he would like make me run around the house or something like try to burn off whatever and i think on some level i and that and like maybe the abuse from being sexually abused like my body and getting attention was like a bad thing
0: yeah it's better for people not to pay attention
1: right and just to be invisible right and like safer there but also like i thought there's danger when people like me but also I'm probably fat, like Dad says, so maybe I'm like not really cute enough or good enough or able to do what this person's able to do. So, yeah, I think I just kind of. That answer the un- question because I got yeah. a little is lost that in that one. <laughs> is that unconscious?
0: Is that unconscious?
1: I think it was unconscious when I was younger, but you know, it would be more conscious. How so? Um. I think really that started to develop when I was in like fifth and sixth grade and fourth, fifth, fifth grade. My best friend, Carrie, she's the cutest. She was just cute and bubbly and I don't know. She was just the prettiest girl in school kind of situation and she was my best friend. And so, of course, any time there were guys that were around, all the attention kind of went to her. And... I feel like I'm completely not answering the question. No, no. Uh,
0: so was it, so was it, say, you know, you're at the mall and she gets oh, the attention. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> are you thinking, yeah, I, there's something wrong with me. I don't deserve the attention. That she's yes, getting.
1: absolutely. Like, I was just like, I'm the kind of the gangly, creepy one in the shadows. And she's like this cute, like that was my conceptualization of myself. Even though I look back at pictures and I'm like, cute? Like, I was a fine kid, yeah. you know? But it was all in my head, yeah. you know? Right. I mean, we were best friends, me and her. And I think I actually turned my worry about what other people thought of me away and just, again, focused on the relationship I could have with her. Like, I idolized her, loved her, nurtured that relationship with her.
0: So friends were... You, you would place. trust that more. I yeah. mean, it's a good choice because romantic relationships before the age of 22, uh, <laughs> on average, last, you know, like
2: mm. two days. Mm-hmm. Or
0: something. Uh, so that's a good choice. So uh, other schema that you. Uh, so let's talk about the mistrust one while we're close to that one. Yeah. So uh, schema therapy calls this mistrust abuse. I'm calling it. Uh, people are harmful Emotionally or physically. Mm-hmm. Know, just, so it's this notion of just like, um, not only do I know that some people can hurt my feelings, pretty much anyone who gets close to me mm-hmm. is, is, is going to hurt me. Mm. They're, they're going to hurt me. Mm. <laughs> um, so uh, tell me if you agree with these statements. I often feel that I have to protect myself from others because they are likely to hurt me.
1: Mm. I never really felt that in, uh, until I was older. Okay. Yes.
0: So when you were younger, you didn't feel that way?
1: A little bit. Mostly just older men. Okay, so life. maybe
0: certain kinds of people.
1: Yeah, like uh, okay. uncles and friends of uncles and dads and just whoever might. My- because
0: those were the people who hurt you. Yeah. Um, it's only a matter of time before someone betrays me.
1: Um, for some reason, I, I never felt that, okay. even though...
0: Most people are selfish and fake.
1: I think I've always wanted that not to be true. So I've never really engaged in that belief.
0: Okay. Um, <laughs> it's hard for me to trust others.
1: It's so mixed. Yeah. It's hard for me to trust men. It's easier for me to trust others.
0: Okay. So maybe circumstantial based on certain kinds of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, So with this one, the people are harmful schema doesn't seem like it, is a strong presence in your personality, even though Mm
2: -hmm.
0: you had all the reasons to mistrust other people Mm -hmm. uh, for whatever reason, maybe your mom was around just enough or Mm -hmm. um, whatever reason Mm -hmm. you never developed that schema, that, that personality again, for people listening out there, we're not talking about just beliefs. Like I believe that, um, you know, I, I believe that I can read a book and comprehend it, <laughs> mm-hmm. or I believe that I believe that other people, th- well, I believe that I'm good enough to put up lights on my porch, um, <laughs> or I believe that Donald Trump is narcissistic or something, or I believe that, uh, global warming is happening. You know, these are, you know, we could frame them as beliefs, uh, schemas are personality mm-hmm. uh, schemas in that it it's not just a belief it's you're certain in in the same way that if say you had a healthy schema of I believe in my heart that other people are good mm-hmm. like this is actually actually this is interesting I never thought about it this way mm-hmm. so I often interface with other people and the way that I was raised um, I, I would gauge rather healthily uh, that I have a in my heart that everyone else is good even even the people we label as bad mm. they might do bad things mm-hmm. there there's sort of a, a, a sort of a road that they went down that led them to do bad things mm-hmm. but I believe that they're good. I'm Luke Skywalker looking at Darth Vader saying I, I see the good in you <laughs> and I, I believe that uh, in my heart I can't get away from that and I interface with other people. And they'll be like, "I don't understand people like you." You're and they'll and they won't. They'll be like, "You're dumb. You're naive." Oh,
1: I heard that a lot too. You, know, yeah. you don't understand. Yeah. Uh,
0: sure, some people are good, but a lot of people are bad, and everyone is selfish. You understand? And when I would bump up against people like that, I was just always like, "One, who hurt you that bad? That would, that would you know result mm-hmm. in that belief?" Which often I would know the answer to that question. Um, but also I was just like, am I naive? You know, because mm. I don't believe, I, I don't believe that um, I can't be hurt by someone. I don't believe that other people can't do bad things. I don't believe that other people are basically selfish, but in my heart, I, I have a deep f- sense mm-hmm. that without knowing someone else uh, very well, that where they're coming from is a good place. I, I, how would I know that? There's no mm-hmm. way for me to confirm that. It's it's basically just this belief system that's in my soul. I I can't get away from that. Mm-hmm. Someone could try to convince me I, I could see a million studies that could point me in the other direction. I'd be like, no. Yeah. I'm still and so that's what a schema is. It's it's some it's a way of seeing the world, it's a model of seeing the world mm-hmm. and it's deeper than a belief system. And so that's where these schemas come from. And for whatever reason for you. Um you developed a schema that you basically trust other people. Maybe certain kinds of people you're like suspicious yeah. of. Certain
1: kinds of people or certain systems like the legal systems and things like that I have trust for. But if you met
0: a prosecutor yeah, in personal like, life, yeah. you'd be like yeah, I, I'm sure you're a good person. You're just a part of a bad system.
1: I've been wondering, though, sometimes, like, do I learn that? Like, I think one of the things I learned to do when I was young um, around people who were bad was to do the, instead of fight, flight and freeze, I would fawn. I would be like, oh, you're nice. You're great. Like, the more nice I seemed to them and the more nice they seemed to me, the safer I felt that something wasn't going to happen. So I think I had some kind of an investment in um, giving them the benefit of the doubt or like as if, like I think I felt some sense of like if I can really believe this and, and give them a chance, then I'm decreasing the risk.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: There was some sort of like convincing myself. This yeah. is fine, you know. It's that little dog in the fire drinking his coffee. This is fine. Yeah, fine. I like these people. Yeah, you know, like there's some of that, but it was also just a deep desire for people to be trustworthy and to be good and to not be harmful. Especially since we moved around so much. Right. I just was like, "Yay, I'm here! Please be good, because I really want someone to play with." <laughs> you know?
0: Right. There's. There's essentially. There's a number of different strategies, but two main ones is I give up. And the other one is I'm just going to convince myself that other people are good and I can depend on them because the alternative is so much worse. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I don't really believe deep down that I can. Um, yeah. And, and so it's like, I, but, and I'll get like, say, 3% of my needs met this way, but it's better than zero.
1: Right. That and, um, I have figured out through many years of therapy that it, and what I find interesting so far and just kind of reviewing what I've learned about schema therapy is that um, whenever there's this idea of like mistrust others or angry at others, um, I'm noticing in myself and in some of my clients like this, that maybe it's not um, going external, but going internal. Like I don't trust myself or I'm angry at myself. I might not punish others, but I punish myself.
0: Mm. What's that like?
1: Um, Well, I think like, for example, on the trust thing, like it took me a while to figure out that it, you know, sure, I've had a lot of experiences where I felt like I got abused or assaulted or was hurt by men. So my thought process, without me being aware of it subconsciously, was that I can't trust myself to assess whether or not someone is safe. And that was my bigger fear than someone else being potentially dangerous because i think i'd kind of come to terms with the fact that like yep there's some dangerous people and there's also some really good people but my problem is can i see them coming
0: mm, i don't trust myself
1: yeah like i had yeah. to learn to develop trust in myself
0: well so that could go two different ways I without could see
1: victim it. blaming but like right
0: so i could see it being like there's something deeply wrong with me, mm-hmm. and I am—I'm uh, different than other people, and they sniff me out, and I'm—it's my fault, you know, self-victim blaming. Another way of saying it is like I'm mm-hmm. a good person, but based on my experiences, because I've normalized certain kinds of behaviors, it's harder for me to really detect it. So I have to be a little bit more on my. Uh, toes when I'm thinking about yeah. uh, trusting other people. I can't really trust my perceptions on that and until I'm really sure. You right. know, like there's two different tones. Like which which tone are were you
1: I think that second one. Okay. Yeah. So
0: just like good self esteem. Yeah. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I always felt myself. that
1: way. I think I always felt that way, even though sometimes I'm victim as a human to shame and shame spirals and feeling the occasional like, is there something wrong with me? Am I defective? But ultimately I think maybe I had to fight for it so much by myself to be like, you know what? Like, if anyone's going to believe in me, it has to be me. <laughs> you yeah. Know?
0: So that's another part to this that maybe I've never talked about is that, you know, we have all those core emotional needs. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, am I lovable? Am I acceptable? Um, can, I, can I exist in the world in, in a good place? And, We obviously can get those needs met through our parents, but we can also get those needs met through ourselves, Mm -hmm. um, depending on how things work out. It's hard to meet one's own needs in that way growing up Mm -hmm. without something. So if there was an experience when you were young that helped you to feel good enough, what would it have been?
1: Uh, My teachers Mm -hmm. growing up. um, I was always... Kind of recognizes, and I feel weird saying this because I don't know who the teachers were. And I don't know, I want to believe it's true, but they were always like, You're smarter than the other kids in the class, you know? Like, immediately they started moving me forward in reading and all kinds of things. And I was always the one that was like, Should have been in first grade when I was in kindergarten and should have been the next grade up. And I got a lot of praise from teachers hmm. for that, you know? Um, so I think I really felt reinforced. Um, But then there was a lot of shame that went along with it too sometimes because like one of my cousins, he was a little slower to learn some things and he was older than me. And my uncle would like point it out. He'd call, he'd be like, Christy, come over here. What's this color? What's this number? Whatever. And then he would make his son do it and he couldn't do it. And then they would like publicly shame the kid in front of me. And so, and I just like felt bad about being smart, but I also secretly held it to myself.
0: Yeah. I like, mean, it's cultural too. It's just like, don't be a, a bragger or something. Right. Um, but. Like they uh, wanted
1: me to move forward a grade and my mom said no, not to do that. Cause she didn't want it to make my brother or my cousins feel bad.
0: That was the reason.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh
0: my God. Yeah.
1: I and mean,
0: I, I'm glad they didn't move you forward, honestly. Cause it's, yeah. it, it, can have emotional consequences that aren't Mm. usually considered. Mm -hmm. Um, My cousin actually moved forward a grade and he was already really young for his grade Mm -hmm. and it was harder for him because he was a year and a half younger than most of his classmates Mm -hmm. for a while. And then uh, when he was actually in eighth grade, he held himself back
2: because
0: Mm. um, one, he wanted to play sports with people that were his grade But two, because he just felt like I never should have moved. I never, never should have been moved forward. Incidentally, he was moved forward like month one of kindergarten. Oh, how would you know
1: at that? Yes. Slow down.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So uh, imagine that. I also
1: had imposter syndrome around all this praise. uh, I was like, what? Okay. I guess I'm, you know, I would, I would read really fast. And sometimes it was like I was just getting the gist of the book, and and then they would, I would be like I'm done, and I'd put it down because I wanted to play, and they would be like, okay, let's test your comprehension. What was the book about? And I could always bullshit. Yeah, I was like, well, this and this and that, and they're like, okay, go play. You know, <laughs> <But> <laughs> I think I did comprehend it, but I just, yeah.
0: Okay, so other schemas here. Uh, I want to because you sort of dipped into this a little bit, is the defectiveness shame schema. Mm -hmm. And I I frame this as I am defective. So tell me if you agree with any of these, because I I couldn't really detect in your language. No one could love me once they saw the real me.
1: I think that's like a 50-50. Okay.
0: There's something wrong with me. No. No matter how hard I try, no one would really love me for who I really am. No. Okay. So it sounds like...
1: In the past, I think I thought that. Okay. But, you know, that was post-bad things.
0: What about, I, I don't fit in, like I don't belong, I'm fundamentally different from others?
1: I think I've always thought I'm a little dorky, but... <laughs>
0: but not that you <laughs> couldn't not, find other dorks. Not that out. I couldn't
1: fit in, yeah.
0: What about, um, it sounds like you don't have the I am incompetent.
1: That one's like hardly at all like yeah. I no.
0: you feel confident very um it sounds like you don't have the world as dangerous
1: a little I got had to get over that okay that schema shifted for me it used to be I was so scared at one point that I wouldn't even leave my house okay and so therapy really therapy and a bunch of other things really helped me
0: where do you think you develop I mean I can imagine but where do you think you developed that schema in, um, in your early life
1: Ah, uh, you know in my early life, definitely, you know, the molestation. Um, and then, like, I would get hurt. I was really rough and tumble. I'd climb trees and take ridiculous risks, and I'd get hurt a lot. And I was in the emergency room like two days in a row once as a kid. I was always into something. But um, I think also, like, the amount of punishing the intense levels of punishing that came from my dad or my uncles and like they were abusive. Right. Um, but then also being sexually assaulted, um, in 2006 was the one that really pushed to that scale. Yeah. That's when I got really scared. Yeah. And had a hard time.
0: Right. We all have this need for, the world to be a safe stable place <laughs> and there's no empirical measure by which we can really point to you know because the world isn't really safe and people get randomly killed by random things all the time they get randomly sick all the time regardless of how careful someone is so at the same time lots of people never get sick or have minor you know sort of dangerous things befall them and um, so there's no there's no empirical truth to I am defective or I am not defective or the world is safe or the world is unsafe. There's no you know, we tend to think of it as like, well, the world is not a safe place. So you, you need to recognize that it, it just depends on the direction you look in. So it's a very debatable thing, depending on which sort of factors you privilege over others. Um, but human uh, need wise, we need to believe That it's safe enough, anyway. Mm -hmm. And the way that we get that need met is by having a life early in life Mm -hmm. that is relatively safe. Mm. And that's primarily dictated by one's parents, but it also could just be dictated by circumstance. You could, for example, uh, have leukemia or or You could, you know, I had a kid once who uh, had the E. coli Mm. uh, and almost died. It was in the hospital when he was young Mm. and he developed that schema that the world was unsafe and Mm -hmm. was 100 percent convinced of that. And Mm -hmm. um, meaning that so. Like for me, when I have a panic attack, it feels like the world is unsafe. But if mm-hmm. you asked me afterwards, I would say, mm-hmm. well, I know the world's safe, but my body doesn't know it's safe. You know, mm-hmm, I, I knew mm-hmm. that it was It was my body or my anxiety was um, what we call ego dystonic, which is it's outside of me. It's, mm-hmm. something, it's something that's happening to me.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but when you ask other people about that, they're like, well, of course I was freaking out because you realize the world is unsafe and anyone who doesn't believe that is a, is a boob, is a naive child. And because in their heart, in the same way that in my heart, I believe other people are good in their heart, they believe the world is unsafe. Mm -hmm. And so, um,
1: yeah, that would be hard to, and then I've felt that walking around at points in my life. And so people could
0: come up to you and say like, well, um, I think you're blowing out of proportion Mm -hmm. or, you know, uh, how about you do these things to get control of that, mm-hmm. um, feeling, but for people who in their heart know that the world is unsafe, then you're like, well, what's the point? You know, right. like there's, there's, there's no point. The world is unsafe.
1: It was, yeah.
0: And there's no getting yeah. that back. Now, some of it's natural to have, but given your early experiences with, uh, so to be very concrete with your life, just to kind of put it into that context of just like you're you're five years old and you need to believe that the world is safe and that people are safe and you're experiencing repeatedly that the world is not safe, Mm-mm. that people can randomly just start targeting you Mm-mm. with bad things and, and, and you just can't, and you can't trust really anyone to care or yeah, notice or no. account for or try to make it safe for you it's just ongoing is unsafe
1: yeah yeah and it's so tricky because like I think back to the if it's okay I don't want to interrupt Please. your line of thought um go back to the this has been something I've gone over so much in therapy around the molestation is that I was lured in under the guise of safety he was my daycare center teacher and he would say um you know if you're really good Then you can stay up at nap time and we'll play, and he would have like other kids stay up at nap time, and we'd go in the bathroom, and that's where everything would happen. Mm. And so it was so confusing because as a child I was like, "Yay! I get to play, and I'm special, and it's safe and fun." And what are we gonna do when the other kids are napping, suckers? You know, (laughs) like I was so excited, but it just was like. Like, uh, right.
0: So the grooming, bam, in my
1: face. I was like, oh, you can't tell when it's going to get dangerous because this seemed good and fun and safe. So I think that's where, like, the original forms of, like, I don't trust. Yeah. Like, it looks fine. It'd be better if he jumped out of the woods, you know what I mean? And and you didn't know him because then you'd be
0: like, well, avoid dark areas or something. Right. Um, but it's another thing to be like,
1: avoid people who are suggesting fun things.
0: Yeah. Avoid, avoid people that say things I like, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, the yeah. waiter is offering me dessert avoid, you know, yeah. it, it, it just becomes, I felt
1: suspicious.
0: Yeah. It's like, well, what's I've been here before, you know? Mm-hmm. When I when I when someone was enticing me with something that I liked,
1: mm-hmm.
0: it ended in very badly for me.
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: someone could come up to you and say, um, "Hey, how about we hang out sometime?" Mm-hmm. And they're mm-hmm. genuine, you know. They're just like they just want to hang out with you because they like you. Mm-hmm. And you're like, "Well, what's going on here? You know? Where
1: and yeah, yeah? I'll meet you there, and I won't. You can't pick me up, and, and I'm
0: not going to be f- super relaxed when we hang out because. Yeah. What if something bad happens?
1: Right. Like the hypervigilance just got to be, it gets to be too much. Like, right. I think that's the thing that kind of pushed me out of this schema of the world is with the vulnerability one. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, I kind of got to the point where I was just like, I was so, cause after the sexual assault, then there was the legal process because um, I prosecuted, and that went on for like a year and a half, almost two years. And that was a long, painful reminder that also it felt like people didn't care because they don't really do very well in the legal system with these things. Yeah. Um, but ultimately I felt so sad about how unsafe and unhelpful, unsafe the world was and how unhelpful the people who were supposed to be helpful were. That I was like, I want to die. Like, I don't want to live like this. I don't want to live in a world where people can just hurt you and no one does anything. Right. You know, it got really tough. Yeah. But I remember being like, I just want to go to another planet. And I couldn't go to another planet, so I moved to Spain. (laughs) (laughs) Um, after, um, I was like, I just have to have something be different. I have to get away from here. And I mean, that was a big move after many years of therapy because I had been so scared after everything happened that I didn't, you know, want to leave my house initially. And then I was thinking about what like helped healed, helped me heal was I always say it was several things. It was putting down some of the schemas I had about the world and going back to school and being a student trying to understand why violence happens in the world. And when I went back to school, I said to myself, I'm going to put down everything I know, and I'm just going to start from square one. Graduate school? This was my undergrad. And then uh, I was like, okay, then... But I also had been going to this nonprofit um, self defense class, Home Alive. It was um, self defense classes and boundary setting. And it was beautiful, and the community was there. And I'm realizing that what I needed to heal was these corrective experiences of community who were kind to me. Home Alive was a kind space, they were a space where they let me have my feelings. I got to hear other people's feelings. We had a sense of everyone in the community wanted everyone to be safe and that it was okay to like speak your mind and try to fight back or process what you're going through. And they also did a lot of talking about like why we're afraid of things that maybe we don't necessarily always need to be afraid of. Mm-hmm. And it was because of Home Alive that I was actually able to like Really start going out in the world again. I remember one of the first times I like really left my house after the rape, and I was like nervous to just be out and about. And I was kind of mad at everyone around me because I was just like, everyone just drives around like they're safe. (laughs) What idiots, you know? (laughs) Like I was just really mad at everybody. And I stopped at this gas station. I was like, no, 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 people are good. We're working on corrective experiences. I didn't know that term then, but out to the gas station to fill up my tank and then some old guy pulls up next to me and starts sexually harassing me and like telling me like really gross dirty jokes while I'm filling up and I was like can you please leave me alone and he just got really mad at me and <laughs> I'm like this is terrible experience for me to have right now but I don't know like I finally started figuring out a way to be more resilient through Home Alive and continuing to go out, and it was the classrooms. It was the feminist group I joined. It was Home Alive and the community of people who wanted people to be safe. And even though I was still really frustrated with the way the world was, and I felt this sense of vulnerability to harm almost all the time, I knew I had to start doing something that's where my activism kicked in was because I have to do something. I can't live in this world. I have to either try to help it be a better world or I can't live in this world.
0: Right. So the need to feel safe yeah. was always there. Yeah. And you eventually discovered for yourself that a healthy way to meet that need is to become an activist.
2: Yeah. Because, and be with people.
0: And to be with others who you um, uh, will just make you feel safe, you know, to give you they ho- hope about. for humanity and stuff. Yeah. Um so and that's a difficult thing for people to to, to delineate because we have this other thing's called overcompensation, right? So in order to to be mm-hmm. safe, mm-hmm. one might overcompensate by being um very dangerous or Mm. by being very demanding or making other people feel unsafe being very dominant you know Mm. this is men are taught to do this generally speaking Mm -hmm. but but women can do it too where it's like okay so in that moment when you're like okay i'm going to become an activist Mm -hmm. um, it'd be hard to know uh, prior to you engaging in that behavior i mean obviously activism is good Mm -hmm. but it, it's possible to do activism in an abusive way.
1: Oh, I totally did for a while too.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> to, to be dominant and um, harmful or, or mean or something.
1: And that's one of the things I think, like there's so many schemas that I, I think that could be added. Mm. That would be of interest or even like po- positive schemas. But one of them is like, um, I have, maybe, maybe it is in here, but it's in the, it's in the coping mechanisms. But I know for myself, and I see some people in my life who've done activism get into this space where it's like you approach the activism with this intense amount of anger and panic and urgency that all whatever it is you're trying to stop needs to stop right away, right, and like your whole my whole body was just so like. Ugh.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm just gonna type because I I want to keep notes because this part of this is me sort of learning about these stories, so um, I'm I'm gonna put it for now. and gonna put it in the um, you know vulnerability or the world is dangerous schema mm-hmm. and the overcompensation.
1: It's so like I, it was like, activism, like a hero
0: activism. Okay, activism with anger and panic.
1: Like I'm the only one out there who cares, so hero. I've got to really fight for it.
0: I'm the only one. Out there, who cares and I'm going to fight for it
1: to my detriment
0: to to my detriment right right so that's the part that um, keeps people in the schema, which is that mm-hmm. um, while well, I'm doing something I, I'm I'm fighting back but it's from a place of anger and panic and I'm alone mm-hmm. and the rest of the world is still, uh, uh, inflexibly dangerous, mm-hmm. you know that uh, I'm fighting against them because I want to eliminate them, not mm-hmm. because I think they're convincible
1: Right? Like I, I'm trying to destroy them. Was. Some of it was that, or or convince, like desperately con- desire to convince. Please stop hurting other people. Yeah,
0: and if know? they don't immediately, because I see this too. Then I just
1: wanted to burn them down.
0: Yeah, it's like yeah. It, this. This if. And unless this changes Mm -hmm. uh, soon, Mm -hmm. then it'll be just more evidence that the world is unsafe and these people can't be trusted. Yeah, and we have to either split off as a country Mm. uh, and get rid of them, Mm. or split off as a gender, or split off Mm. you know whatever it is we have to. There's no, there's only one answer to to this. Yeah, I'm going to fight it, but. Yeah. I still don't actually believe that the world is safe, right. that the um, the healthy approach, which is hard to attain, is I'm going to fight because I want to make the world a safer place. But mm-hmm. generally speaking, the world is a safe place. Mm-hmm. It has unsafe elements in it that mm-hmm. need to change. Mm-hmm. And people are being harmed. And, mm-hmm. you know, I might be harmed again. Mm-hmm. but and that's not going to be good. Mm-mm. I'm not going to say that no, me no, being no, harmed no. in the future is going to be a great, th- if yeah. I'm at the gas station and someone's going to say lewd comments to me, it's going to be traumatic for me. Yeah. Um, but, you know, at least 99 times out of a hundred at the gas station, that's, that's not going to happen to me. Right. And, uh, and I'm going to fight that guy at the gas station is probably not going to learn his lesson, but you know, most people are safe. You know, yeah. it's, it's that notion of, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, most most of the world is generally safe. Now, people will say to me, you know, but empirically that's not true. We have global warming and we have Donald Trump and we have rapists and we have murderers and we have uh, corrupt police officers and we have abusive partners. You know, it, it's mm-hmm. not safe. Uh, that's not the point. <laughs> you know, a, a similar debate you could say. With someone who's like, you know, people don't care about my feelings. So I could be like, well, the healthy schema is to. Actually believe that people do carry very feelings, but they're just like, well, but empirically speaking, no one has ever cared about right. My feelings. right
1: that's a hard to resist that lived experience right
0: and by you telling me that my healthy way of acting is to actually reverse that way of thinking based on my experience is actually making me feel even more unheard by, oh, you, by totally. you. right so <laughs> so it, it's and that's the key is like it's as you're one. working with people or you're sort of experiencing this model it it it's deeper than is it where you're coming from, where your energy is coming from, is deeper than a conclusion based on evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a way of seeing the world. Mm-hmm. And um, although, so for me, I believe that people care about me and about others. Um, but I also know that people can be real selfish. Mm-hmm. And there's also the, an inherent chasm between everybody mm-hmm. that is frustrating.
1: It, oh yeah. that
0: is really hard
1: just the nature of being in our own body you mean like yeah not really we're just in here on our own
0: yeah in this we're, vessel <laughs> yeah we're we're alone and, yeah um and that's that's real and disappointing mm-hmm. um but it doesn't mean that people don't care so it's not like and i also recognize that a lot of people do very uncaring things mm-hmm. and uh, people can be very i mean believe me i'm on the internet i i people sure. are very uncaring towards me on the internet yeah so um but deep down, I, I believe so. That's what it comes down. So the you know the world is dangerous. So then somehow I just want to because you, you you talked about a, a lot of journey that you went on. I just want to highlight some things of just the strength that you that you've had. Mm. And what's interesting to hear your story, and maybe you've made this connection, is that you went to the adult version of elementary school to be with teachers. Yeah, you you found you had that. That was your, you, you knew well enough to say that. Well, I don't trust a lot of people, but I do basically have oh, good good experiences yeah. in school and with teachers yes. with with that kind of role. Yeah, and um, you know, taking feminist classes or mm-hmm. going to feminist organizations. There's mm-hmm. usually a leader. Mm-hmm. You're amongst other people. You're mm-hmm. you're trying to work at something. Learning um,
1: from each other, right?
0: Obviously, going to graduate school, um, going to your bachelors, getting graduate. Yeah. these are these are classes. Yeah, you're competent. It's a place that you know, and that's what I recommend people do is like. Find that that space mm-hmm. that you're the most comfortable in, mm-hmm. and then it will start to generalize. Which it did for you is y- you could trust these people. You mm-hmm. could trust the feminists um, and maybe the advocates. You, mm-hmm. could, you could trust uh, those people because mm-hmm. you're so the so put to put a fine point on it. It's not like the feminists were more safe than other people in mm-hmm. general in mm-hmm. terms mm-hmm. of like you know falling off of a building or getting right. in a car crash or driving drunk or you know like there's the same rates of i
1: think they just helped me see it through a different
0: well so so there's that which is obviously a very important thing yeah. of of the um seeing the world at, seeing the matrix you know <laughs> yes of, of, that everything. yeah <laughs> um but the felt sense of is the world safe
2: mm-hmm.
0: the world of the feminist world wasn't you know, it it was probably more safe to you because the likelihood that one of them was going to sexually harass you in that world was less, right?
1: Oh, definitely. Um,
0: but it's not like feminists don't sexually harass people.
1: Yeah, I learned that too. <laughs> yeah, and it's not like sexu- it's not like
0: feminists don't um, don't uh, become harmful to other human beings. No. So they can be, they're they're just as likely. But but the point is is that um, they helped that, me. That was the world that you could. S- schema-wise, right. believe right. that I'm pretty sure this world, it's a classroom environment or it's the feminist environment, where I, I feel like I can trust that world. And right. so so when you're looking at the world, if, if, if you understand the schema, you can say, yeah, I generally don't think the world is safe. Mm-hmm. And Kirk is saying that that's an unhealthy schema. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well, where can I find safety? Mm -hmm. Uh, where's that group of people? Mm -hmm. And then you have those corrective experiences as you're talking about Mm -hmm. with those people. Mm -hmm. And then slowly in your heart, you actually start believing that the world, not only these people, but the world is safe. Mm. And then you can start branching off into the world and, and having those corrective experiences Mm -hmm. and going like, okay, um, this other group of people is, is also safe. And this this other group would be this yeah. larger group. And then it starts to generalize to uh Republicans are safe, you right. know, or whatever. Yeah. You know, it just it just starts getting larger and larger. And um, the point is not to be naive, not to be Pollyanna, not to put not to put yourself uh, into a situation where you're gonna be victimized. But the point is is like so you can get your needs met. That's yeah. always the key because you, Christy, yes. Yes. have a need to walk around in your world, whether right. it's walking your dog or working with clients or going to graduate school mm-hmm. or coming on this podcast or yeah. hanging out with new people that you don't know yep. or working at a restaurant. You, We have a need to walk around in that space like it's generally okay. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And yes, and it's – gosh, I have so much to – say about all of that too is like and that's what's so interesting and i knew these two the mistrust and abuse and vulnerability ones were going to um be interesting for me to look at the trajectory of my life around because like i think the other part was i didn't want to sometimes we don't want to move into this idea that the world is going to be o that the world's maybe safer than we think um because I think several things happen. One is sometimes it feels like it negates all the bad, like, like people are saying, but all that bad didn't happen. Right. Or like your personal experience is not accurate. And it's like, nope, that's still accurate. It's just, we need a fuller narrative of the whole picture. We can't like flatten it out in this one world is bad and unsafe story. It's, it has to have a fuller narrative around it. And I think you're right. Like I went into the teachers and it was funny because I actually didn't even know what feminism like I didn't know that women's I don't know how I didn't know this but I didn't know that a women's studies degree was like based in feminism anyways I yeah and at one point someone was like oh yeah if you intern at Home Alive that's great that's a feminist organization and and they said something about me being feminist or something and I I kind of felt myself like looking around like Are they, at me I'm feminist <laughs> Like I think I had still bought into the idea that it was like a kind of a bad thing like yeah, men hating or something. men hating yeah or like something was skewed and so then it was like broadening my schema to like this is just looking at power structures but i did feel a sense of safety amongst them that was the great like starting point because a lot of them really understood my personal experiences or wanted to hear it um but i remember getting like so Intense about the activism. I was burning out, you know, trying to do too much. I was protesting in front of the courthouse. I was leading rallies on campus. I was trying to get on the news. Like, I was constantly at it and getting laws changed and just couldn't stop. Raising money for Home Alive.
0: Right, and so all that was good. And as you were experiencing that, you're having a corrective experience because yes. it could have gone badly yes it was it was risky but well, it, but it went well
1: it did go it did go well in the sense of i felt empowerment like that was the and other safe. thing is and i think safe. safe was that's where the locus of control
2: right
1: where i used to see the this is where a dangerous world gets to my mind is when i put the locus of control of the world outside of me if I find some power inside self, then I have a locus of control internally.
0: And you have to experience that. And, so, yes. and that so and that's the big key here is that schema therapy says to change your schemas, it takes like one to three years. Mm-hmm. So obviously in that time,
2: mm-hmm. in
0: the beginning, you've already identified that you have a schema. So yeah. the, the schema is not something for people to change their mind about like, so you out there, if you believe that the world is unsafe Mm -hmm. and you're hearing, well, you know, Kirk or this model talks about how like, um, that's a maladaptive schema to to say that the world is unsafe is maladaptive. The, the key here is that you're not supposed to try to convince yourself that the world is safe because that's not possible. Uh, you have to experience the world in a safe way. So Mm -hmm. you might have to engineer your life Mm -hmm. so that you actually stretch yourself a little bit. Um, in areas that you feel the most comfortable, uh, and figuring that out, and that's what schema therapy does, and that's why you need a therapist to help you because if you're alone,
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, you'll be like, well, one, the world isn't safe, and that's Mm-mm. ridiculous. Um, two, you might not recognize like, well, maybe I, maybe I'm, I feel like classroom activities are a little less unsafe than others, you know. And then you have a conversation. Well, maybe if you did this, okay, you know, and you start making plans for. And then mm-hmm. you you come back from your first day of class and and if you didn't know any better, you would just sort of subconsciously experience it in the safety continuum. Mm. but you go into therapy, and your therapist asks you, "Okay, so you went to class, how safe did you feel?" Mm-hmm. And you get this time to really think like
2: mm-hmm. oh
0: well i felt uh felt uncomfortable with this, but I guess I felt okay with that. Well, you know, when did you feel the most safe mm-hmm and I felt the most safe, huh? Well, I felt the most safe when I was sitting with this person that I'd kind of met and she seemed like a nice person. Mm -hmm. But to tell you really what made me feel the most safe is when I raised my hand and the teacher called on me and I just said something. And that after that, I felt a lot more safe because I felt like, Mm -hmm. Okay, I can say things in this group and people won't attack me. Mm -hmm. That really made me feel safe. Oh, okay, so let's really sit in that space for right now. Yeah, Like you felt safe because Mm -hmm. you spoke up. Mm What a good thing that you Mm -hmm. have that power. Oh, okay, Mm -hmm. I have that power. So Mm
2: -hmm. if you don't have a
0: therapist to walk you through that,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: one, you won't go to the class. Two, when you do, you'll go like, well, that felt uncomfortable. I'm not going back. Mm Mm-hmm. There was something uncomfortable about that. I didn't uh, like it. I'm uh, not going. And you'll convince yeah. yourself through your schema. Yeah. This is useless. The world is unsafe. Why did I even bother? Right. I'm not good in those conversations. Right.
1: I'm just going to avoid it again right.
0: So without therapy, yeah. and you could try your best to like think yes. of it healthily. But if you don't have another person to walk you through that, you're just lost in the woods.
1: Yes. And, you know, it's so interesting that you kind of keep going back to the therapist part, which I think is really important because that was the person who told me about Home Alive. Um, my, a therapist, right after everything happened, she was like, You should go to this organization, Home Alive. I planned to go like two times and avoided it, <laughs> and then finally went um, and fell in love with it. And it was because of Home Alive that I learned what women's studies was. And then, so did I, the like, therapist
0: help you process your feelings? after going at all, or did you just kind of go on your own?
1: Um, I think I only, I had some, like, limited sessions with her. It was through, like, oh. King County Sexual Assault Resource Center, Case Arc. Um, and then I was going to go into a group after that, so I didn't get to process it with her. Did you but, talk with
0: anyone else about your experiences during that time? Was anyone else supportive during that time?
1: Um, in my life, you mean? Yeah,
0: to process your uh, path. Because it's to me, just to put you know my perspective, it seems like you're kind of at a Y in the road where you oh. could have, you could have, it could have been worse. You could have been sure. gone down a downward spiral, but you chose yeah. this other route of like, um, I'm going to find places where I feel power, mm-hmm. and I'm going to build on that, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to get more and more power in the world. Yeah. And Even look, though and I didn't at, go
1: into them thinking I was going to get power, I went into them thinking. I'm some kind of broken thing that needs to be fixed. Like, I had this other hole. But
0: that's a, that's a kind of a power of just, like, I have the power to get myself fixed.
1: Oh, that's true. Like, yeah. there are people who
0: don't even think they have that power.
1: Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I know it was... I had some friends. A lot of my, a lot of my friends at the time kind of didn't know how to respond and didn't do a very good job at that. Some of them did. My mom was always a constant... Even though sometimes she said the wrong thing, most of the time she was awesome, you know. (laughs) If I were like, that's the wrong thing to say, she would be like, I'm sorry, okay, let's learn, you know. She was really good at that, but I don't know, like I had that support, yeah. But I think also like one of the, I gotta say, one of the things I learned, the biggest thing I learned, like thinking about the activism being healing, it was the activism, it was the community And it was also the people who would kind of walked that walk before me. Um, When I realized I was overextending myself, trying to be the hero to save everyone from ever having anything bad happen to them again, I was killing myself doing it. And a good friend of mine looked at me and she said, Christy, if you want to stop violence in the world, you have to start with stopping it against yourself. And I was like, huh? (laughs) I'd never thought about that before. And that's when I realized, oh, it's okay for me to slow down and take care of myself. In fact, I have to, if I'm going to keep doing this work Mm. to help people, I got to stop pushing so hard Mm. with that level of intensity internally. I think that's one of the things I liked. You talked about on the deep dive schema therapy was Our coping mechanisms and the way we respond to these schemas—it's a lot of the issue is in how intense it is, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: how intense the reaction is.
0: Right, that's the marker. Is not that when someone disappoints you, you're hurt because, of course, you are. Mm -hmm. It's the intensity of the hurt. Right. If you seem to feel, you know, two to ten times more hurt than would seem to be sort of consummate to the situation, then that points to a schema, um, that is amplifying things. Right. Um, and so that can be confusing to people because they're just like, so what, I'm just supposed to like, let shit like that go. No, you're supposed to be hurt, mm-hmm. but your schema is doubling it, you know? Right. Because this is yet another example of how people can't be trusted, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. instead of, Wow, that person really fucking hurt my feelings. Mm-hmm. But you know, people can be generally trust, trusted. Mm-hmm. Maybe I don't trust that person, but, right. but people, you know, I'm okay. I, I've, there's a foundation to land on after my conclusion that that person is a mean person,
1: right?
2: Right.
0: Uh, but if you have no foundation, then you just fall through the floor of just like complete despair.
2: Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean
0: depending on how intense it's so the other schema that you were pointing to was subjugation, you know, I must please others. Mm-hmm. So tell tell me if you agree with this, this one. I usually let other people have their way because I'm afraid of the consequences. Yes. If I assert what I want, something bad will happen. Yes. In relationships, I let other the I let the other person make the decisions.
1: Yeah. Even though I know better on all of these, I still feel this stuff. Oh, that's
0: a scheme. I don't really make decisions on my own.
1: Oh, no, I totally make decisions on my own.
0: I often don't really know what I want. I know. The major decisions of my life weren't, weren't really my own.
1: No, those are mine.
0: People consider me a people pleaser. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I resent others for not asking about my feelings.
1: part of the emotional deprivation for me was I don't resent them because that's just what I expect.
0: Hmm. But do you have any kind of, are you disappointed? Like Um, do you ever walk away from an interaction with friends and you're just, or is it frequent that you walk around, you walk away from interactions with people and where you attended to their feelings a lot, but they didn't to you and you're just like, it's kind of disappointing. Yeah. Like that they didn't think to ask. Yeah.
1: And I kind of know my role in that too.
0: Uh, Let's see. When I'm angry, I usually don't show it directly. Yeah. <laughs> when I'm upset with someone, I sometimes do passive things to get back at them. No. Okay. So yeah, I think you've hit on the or illuminated the components of the subjugation schema, which is <clears throat> you have the pleaser mm-hmm. side of the pleaser schema. You don't appear to have the passive aggressive side of the pleaser mm-hmm. schema, and you also don't seem to have the uh, dependency. So, so to me, it's like, and I'm going to take a little note here of um, maybe, oops, maybe this schema should be should be divided into two. into um, dependent. Uh, passive aggressive and ple- just general pleaser mm-hmm. um, so what's it like to be to have a pleaser schema like what? where does that come from
1: I think it came from trying to soothe the bear and my dad
0: hmm.
1: you know like if I'm if I can sense that he was I could sense he was kind of getting agitated or about to erupt or even if he was in a good space like i would please try to do something pleasing for him mm-hmm. or like one kind of classic one that i learned as a kid was my dad would tell jokes um and if you didn't laugh at the joke he would uh, erupt in anger
0: jesus <laughs>
1: yeah like what the hell don't you think that's funny what do you think? I'm some idiot who can't make a joke. Like, oh you would God. just kind of spin out, and then you're just there because it's your weekend with your dad, you know. Uh, no, no, you're funny. I'm sorry. Maybe I just don't understand. There was a lot of like, no, no, no. Maybe I'm just the problem, you know.
0: Right. So the.
1: And if I learned later, too, like whenever he said anything really, anything that I could ah. tell. Yeah. If he, if it was supposed to be funny clearly and wasn't, I would laugh.
0: Right.
1: Like convincingly,
0: even, yeah. did you drum up the laughter, or did you actually convince yourself it was funny?
1: No, drummed it up. Okay, I was always like, "What a
0: dummy!" Oh, really?
1: Yeah, I just couldn't stand his humor. Yeah, it was just.
0: Well, clearly, I, I mean, mean even as if we got older, was like funny. there
1: were some people in my family that, when he would do stuff like that, they could get away with like the har har har, you know, like kind of. Na, 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 you know and he would kind of look around like oh yeah I guess that's close enough to thinking I'm funny I don't know humor was a trigger for him
0: if I was to take a guess I would think that one narcissism was playing a role in terms of him needing to be seen as all good and um, and competent at humor mm-hmm. Um and more fundamentally, that in those three different responses, one is to just laugh, two is to har-har, and, and three is to just not laugh at all, that yeah. the, not, the not laughing would trigger his abandonment issues or his lack of nurturance yeah. issues, which would be like he's invisible. Mm-hmm. And to mm-hmm. the narcissistic person, that's, that's the depths of their despair, is mm. if I'm invisible Then I will. I'll never get my needs met, Mm. Um, and so I have to be so kind of special Mm -hmm. and noticeable Mm -hmm. that at the very least I'll get sort of fake praise. And so har har, like har har, dad is like, well, it's at least I'm on the planet, right? I'm I'm here. They see me. It's not as good as if
1: I'll take dad joke level.
0: Yeah, it's like well, at least they're (laughs) responding, and I'm I have contact. Uh, in the way that I feel like I know how to get contact. But for someone not to laugh at all yeah. means that I don't exist. Mm. And that's how I feel deep down. Not that I'm trying to make you feel bad about your dad. No, but, that but,
1: I, I always do. I think I have a lot of compassion for him. He went through a lot of stuff. Right. Even though I have a lot of problems with him and we don't talk. Yeah. It was just...
0: Right. I know can, his
1: childhood was not easy. Right.
0: Um, Okay. So, yeah, the idea with the pleaser schema, uh, particularly that side of that schema, is that when we're young, we have a need for nurturance, love, safety, Mm -hmm. um, stability. And Mm -hmm. we learn that if we're not a pleaser, Mm -hmm. then things will be, uh, you know, lack of nurturance, lack of safety, lack of stability. And we develop not a practice of pleasing, but a personality of pleasing. Mm,
2: mm, mm -hmm.
0: Uh, There's the practice of like, okay, you know, like you said, um, that you could tell, well, I'm just going to please him right now. I'm going to, I'm going to act like he's funny. Um, but in a lot of other instances, um, So that's the practice of pleasing. Right. But in other instances, your personality is one of pleasing where um, basically you have to shift your attention. Maybe that's one way of thinking about this is when you're young, there's a lot of things to pay attention to. And you learn that you have, there are certain functional things to pay attention to and other things that you should pay a lot less attention to. So in the moment, say you're seven years old and your dad's in a good mood. Um, but based on your experience you would know well I have I I could just start paying attention to what I want in this situation
2: Mm -hmm. you know I
0: want to (laughs) uh, watch TV or I want to not laugh at his jokes or Mm -hmm. you know I can just sort of pay attention to what I want while Mm -hmm. paying you know seven year old I'll pay three percent attention to what my dad wants or needs Mm -hmm. and for people who have parents who aren't like your dad and are you know uh, raised better than your dad was they ha- They can do that. They can get away with paying attention to only 3% of what dads needs and 90% of what I need. Um, but over time, you learned that you had to be almost 100% focused on what your dad needs
2: mm.
0: and 0% focused on what you needed. Oh, yeah. Because if he focused on what you needed, um, it would take away from your vigilance to what he needed, mm-hmm. and that was bad. Mm-hmm. Because you had this other need of safety, which sort of overrode uh, so you, you sort of, you know, you start at the baseline of Maslow's hierarchy. It's just right. like, well, I, I want to be safe. Um, I'm not going to start going up the ladder in terms of like having fun or being creative or mm-hmm. self-actualizing. I'm, I'm going to stick to the baseline of safety. I need that need to be met, which means I have to not pay attention to all my other needs.
1: Right. And if I did that, I would get in trouble with him. Right. Like, I realize now that's where I got some of my flying under the radar tendencies. I used to self-sabotage a lot because if i acted like i was proud of myself i think maybe my dad maybe it was that i was taking his light or something because the reaction was uh, like i learned not to do that because otherwise i'd get kind of the like who the hell do you think you are you know you're not that great like sit down and shut up
0: when i nominated you for the student of the year award uh Was that challenging for that? Yes. Uh,
1: Actually, that was the first time I actually stepped into believing it. Okay. Because I've gotten, I've received some awards and attention in my undergrad too. And I always thought, oh, everyone's just saying I'm good because I went through all this bad stuff. They're just trying to make me feel better about my life or something. Yeah. And I, even though I knew I cared and was a good person and, did interesting work that maybe was good for other people like I could never really sit in it because I was just like no oh, that's dangerous mm. dangerous to believe that maybe
0: but, but with th- your for some work. reason
1: the, with, with with my work now or like after that and oh, how hard
0: you work to be a good student and good
1: therapist I do and I honestly I probably work harder than I should um, I'm trying to find that's the perfectionist schema. I'm trying to find my way of having balance in my life mm. because I really push myself. Okay,
0: well, we'll get to that in a second. So, yeah, so you're you're growing up, and the idea goes is that the personality changes. So mm-hmm. the, okay. the, the sort of baseline um, uh, mode mm. is... Pay attention to other people. Mm-hmm. Don't pay attention to your to your own feelings. Mm-hmm. Please other people. Mm-hmm. Um, don't please the self because that's bad. Um, it's not a conscious thought. It's not a belief system. It's a it's a baseline mode. It's just like you wake up in the morning and that's just how you operate. It's it's cruising speed. Mm-hmm. You don't because when you're young. Uh, you learn it's better to develop a mode rather than trying to force yourself to do it because if it comes naturally, you'll do it more consistently. Mm-hmm. And so, if you're if you're a pleaser more consistently, and your personality is just structured that way, yeah. then your life goes better. This is all subconscious. So then you merge into adulthood, and you're just you just sort of continue that mode, even though you don't have to because even though other people aren't really asking you to do that, and so you just continue this mode of like. Um, in order for me to get my safety needs met, I have to pay attention to other people's needs and mm-hmm. I have to please them.
2: Mm-hmm. And I cannot
0: pay attention to my own needs.
2: Mm-hmm. I can't
0: okay. even no, really notice them. Yeah. Like it, that that can't even be a thing that I could pay attention to because when I did that when I was a kid, it sort of distracted me from other people, which what led to a lot of unsafety in my life. And so there's this compulsion to like, mm-hmm. what do you need? What do you need? And the the self-sabotage in this is that one, you're not paying attention to your needs and no one can pay attention to your needs because n- you're not even saying what you need. Right. Yeah. Like a classic, um,
1: I see this in sort of and myself. <laughs>
0: pleaser, uh, dynamic is like, um, like, I you know, I might ask a pleaser, well, what do you want for dinner? You know? And they're like, uh, I don't know. What do you want? And I, b- I, might be like, well, I don't know. I'm thinking about this or that, but I don't know. I'm, I'm curious because, because for me, my needs are such that um, I want what I want, but I also want what they want. I want it to be a a Venn diagram. Mm. I have a need mm-hmm. of uh, it this working out well. I have a need to. I have a need to please too. I don't have a. I also have a need to please myself. Mm-hmm. But I have a need to uh, feel like we're in a relationship, too. I have a, I have a need to be in contact with a human being. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I could go to my stuffed animal and say, what do you want for dinner? And the stuffed animal will basically <laughs> give me the impression anyway that they're cool with whatever I want. And, and that's
1: not much of a person to right, connect to. Right.
0: It's not a real human being. Mm-hmm. And so the, uh, the need that I have is you know, some, some contact with that. And so the pleaser will say, well, I don't know. What do you want? And then and it can be very frustrating to the other person because they're just like, so I, I feel like you're not letting me in, you know, and I, 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 I feel like it's, I guess it's nice that you're doing whatever I want, but I, I don't. And then, so let's just say, you know, you deep in your heart, you really don't want Italian,
2: mm-hmm. but you
0: don't really know that. Mm-hmm. And so, but you're just purely focused on pleasing. Mm-hmm. The person says, how about Italian? And you're like, yes, please, I would love Italian. So you go to Italian. Deep in your heart, you're just like, I don't want Italian. I hate Italian.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: especially, again, if you're the more dependent, passive-aggressive side, which you're not, you're secretly resenting the whole experience. And the, the experience at dinner goes badly, you know, which makes sense. And then the person who's, who is the not-pleaser is like, how come this is going badly? I thought <laughs> I thought this was supposed to be going well. Yeah. And the uh, self-sabotage is, and then the, the other person might even start saying things like, I'm angry at you that you never tell me what you want, you know. And then the pleaser is like, "Oh, okay, so I'll please you by start telling you what I want." Is that you know? And it just becomes this vicious cycle. And and until the pleaser can stop and say, "Okay, I need I need to change my cruising speed mm-hmm. here. I need to actually like uh, not just sort of willpower myself to figure out what I want, but I actually have to get in touch with that." Mm-hmm. And then experience the world as a safe place for me to be in touch with my own wants. Yeah. Like I have to s- slowly start, okay, I'm going to pay two atten- 2% attention to what I want. Mm-hmm. Is the world still safe? <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
0: Let's try that for six months. Uh-huh. Okay, not so bad. It's pretty, <laughs> pretty safe. There's some, you know, but you know, it's okay. And then, okay, how about for the next year I'll, I'll spend you know, 5% attention on what I want. Is this going to be okay? Because traditionally this never goes well for me. Mm -hmm. Okay, not so bad. You know, and again, you're talking with a therapist or you're self-processing like, okay, those notions of self-sabotage are coming in there and they're shoving you back to 0%. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, okay, 5%, not too bad, and 10%. And then you just slowly Mm -hmm. start to build it out until you're paying the healthy amount of attention to your own needs while also other people's needs. But there's a balance there.
1: Totally, I love that so much it's it's I, I talk about boundaries a lot, like they're the container for our s- self to show up mm-hmm. like it's not so much about what I don't want other people to do, there is that, but it's for me, like I have this conceptualization of like it's okay for me to show up with my wants and needs, you know, and what you're talking about is really interesting because I have been like that for so much of my life, and it was so deeply conditioned and it's probably still there in a lot of ways I'm not totally aware of. But I've been inching towards this space where I'm like my therapist for many years. She you know, just kept saying, you're so other-focused. You're so other-focused. What can I do to bring the focus back to you? What do you want? What do you need? And a lot of my past relationships, especially early ones, you know, it was kind of that typical codependency thing. Like I lost myself. I don't know where I went. I'm not really present in the relationship. And I didn't understand that that was actually... I was trying to keep the relationship by pleasing them but what I was doing is I was killing the relationship because I wasn't even in it to begin with like I needed to be able to show up um I have a funny story about how I transitioned a little bit towards what you were just describing about like the percents um a friend of mine some years back said you know Christy you just need to be able to say no sometimes and I was like, oh, yeah, it's just so hard. You know, if someone invites me here, asks for this or that, I really want to be able to help them and or do what they want me to do. And she was like, nope, you got to let your internal teenage boy um, take over. And I was like, what? And she was like, you know, like the guy that's like, I do what I want. And I was like, tell me more about this internal teenage boy. <laughs> and so anyways, we kind of decided... Because I'm so other focused, that I was going to use this alter ego and please him, whatever he wanted. And so I started using him. This became, it was more of a joke, but it actually worked really well for me. If someone asked me to do something, or if someone wanted me to come to their poetry event, or if someone wanted whatever, I would check in with my internal teenage boy first and see, like, does he really want to go or do this? Mm. Um, and it started helping me know more, like, mm, I he doesn't want to go, so I won't go for him. It was kind of this weird, I hope this is making sense. It was kind of a weird little roundabout, but I called my friend and I said, man, I'm loving this internal teenage boy so much. I've named him, and his name is Kevin. And so, <laughs> whenever my friends would... What's he dressed like? I don't I just see, like, T-shirts and baggy jeans and, you know, slouching on the couch playing a video game or something. Hmm. Um, but he, he just, he does what he wants. And it kind of became a joke with my friends. I was like, listen, I'm going to try to say no more to things because it's hard for me. And I told him about Kevin and it became this big joke. So sometimes a friend will ask me, like you know hey do you want to go to this thing with me and i'll say "Mm, kevin says i can't (laughs) and the humor of it i think helped help me find a way to be like it's okay to say no my friends were still there they didn't hate me you know they didn't stop inviting me to things i was able to
0: yeah people still like kevin yeah but they also know that sometimes Kevin wants to play Xbox and right. doesn't want to. <laughs> right. Hang out. Um, right. So this is where it overlaps with Gestalt and, and internal family systems, which mm-hmm. I, which I know you really like.
1: I'm very into that. And right.
0: in in therapy, Gestalt and internal family systems people will be very explicit about that. They'll mm-hmm. they'll be like they'll try to introduce that with clients of just like. Mm-hmm. So, what part of you, if we were to put a name to it, is that part of you that that really just wants to say no? It might be like a part of you that we don't really hear that often. Mm-hmm. But you know what what part of you? And so, someone might say, "Oh, well, I guess it's I don't know. It's the part of you know. They might call it a name, like it's the it's the." Introverted protector, or something, Mm -hmm. or it's the Kevin, or it's the Mm -hmm. it's the teenage boy, or whatever frame people want to put to it, and then you explicitly discuss that in therapy. It's just like, okay, so I hear that you really want to, you're going to go to this thing. What does Kevin think? (laughs) You know, and then you know the person can go, oh, let me check in with that part of me. Um, And uh, you can even in Gestalt therapy, they'll have empty chair work. Well, you. You'll embody both sides, so you would, you know, we might name your pleaser side actually to mm-hmm. sort of externalize that a little bit and say like, um like what name would what name would the pleaser side be?
1: Super Susie.
0: Super Susie. I
1: totally. That just seriously came to me the minute you said that. My middle name is Sue, but Super Susie. Yeah. Sure. Whatever you want.
0: I keep forgetting i have all these overlaps with my mom because my <laughs> my mom's name's Sue and. Huh? You're both from Kansas. And my
1: and, mom's name's Sue. Oh,
0: okay. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you got Super Susie. Uh, so you'd sit in a chair and and the therapist would say, okay, Super Susie, I want you to talk to Kevin and try to convince Kevin to go to this thing. And Super Susie would be like, well, you know, people would be really disappointed in us. and Mm-mm. and um, I'm I don't supposed wanna, to
1: be loving to everyone. I don't want to
0: hurt their feelings. And it's not about me; it's about them. Okay, now sit in Kevin's chair, and I want you to talk to to Super Susie. Um, fuck you, Super Susie! I don't want to go. <laughs>
2: I love Kevin. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and uh, and then uh, you just go back and forth. And the hope is is that that the hope is not to eliminate Super Susie or no. to eliminate Kevin. The hope is is to have balance and to and mm. to integrate and to have it it. Uh, 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 for this, for the ego on top of that, because mm-hmm. you're not Super Susie, Mm-mm. you're not Kevin. You're, you're, you're something. You're something grander than that. And so, y- you could say to yourself, "Okay, who do I want to listen to today? Is it Super Susie, or is it Kevin, or is it some other right. part, part of me? Right. Um, who is it that I want to listen to right now?" Um, and you decide.
2: Mm-hmm. You don't
0: let Super Susie decide all the time. You the you decides right. which voice I want to listen to. Right. Or of, of which of the voices that I hear. It's the committee of voices inside of me. Mm-hmm. You know, what what is what do I want given mm-hmm. all the factors? Mm-hmm. You know? Um there's a part of you know, there might be another part of you that's like um The person who likes to do things, you know, the the person who doesn't like to say no to things because it's like, why stay home? FOMO. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, exactly. The FOMO (laughs) part. What's the name of that person?
1: (laughs) FOMO Frank. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody has the alliteration.
0: (laughs) And then you know, so maybe FOMO Frank says like, "Hey, FOMO (laughs) dude," you know.
1: YOLO. Yeah. Reminds me
0: of Inside Out, the cartoon. (laughs)
1: Yes, I love that. Well, that's I I actually use. That when I talk to people about IFS, I use the movie Inside Out to kind of bounce off. Like, this is what it is. We have these parts inside of ourselves.
0: Uh, So the perfectionist side is the I must be perfect or else is what I'm calling it. Schema therapy calls it unrelenting standards, hypercriticalness. Mm -hmm. Uh, So tell me if you agree with these ones. Um, you've already said that you're a perfectionist, so you mm-hmm. agree with that one. Mm-hmm. I often push myself to do the best I can do. Yes. It's really hard for me to be seen as average. Yes. That's interesting, because I, I tell me more about that one, because um, I that's not how I would describe you.
1: I want to be seen as average in a way because it's safe, but... I think the honest a lot of it goes back to the emotional deprivation of like have people noticed me have I been um, seen
0: special enough to be seen
1: yeah like I think it kind of goes to that am like I, I'm,
0: not, I'm not only a good student I'm the best student
1: am I super basic you know yeah. or is there anything like I have friends that are so interesting and just like wildly unique behaviors and diverse creative interests and stuff and sometimes I'm like. I want to be, like, super weird like that.
0: (laughs) Noticeable and 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 I
1: I think it's less noticeable as much as it is, like...
0: Compelling.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Or, like, I think it is just, like, maybe if I do that, I'll uh, fill up my cup around this emotional deprivation thing.
0: Well, tell me specifically, since I knew you so well as a student and as an Mm -hmm. intern therapist... How did your perfectionism show up at graduate school, mm. if at all?
1: Um, this one's kind of embarrassing to admit because it's something I've always struggled with, and I don't know if it's really embarrassing, but it, for me, it's embarrassing. Um, just because I've always been a pretty talkative person, and I think I, I think I have something to offer, mm. you know, and so. My perfectionism would show up in like, I'm going to offer something to this classroom conversation or I want to... What was
0: the worry if you didn't?
1: Um, maybe I'm not being a good student or that people would think I didn't care, but most of the time I'm just compelled. Like I honestly can't stop myself. Uh-huh. I, I get so fascinated with whatever's going on in the classroom. Right. That I'm just like, and I well, think I was starved for school when I was young. So I was, I liked school right. So
0: Well, that's why you got student of the year. Yeah. Um, <laughs> was there a point in which your perfectionism harmed you in graduate school?
1: Yes. Like it would take forever to write uh, papers because okay. I wanted them to be perfect. My mom always tells this story to me when I was a little girl. I was in preschool, and you know how they have you lay on those pieces of paper and they draw the outline of your body, and then you color it in? I've always been like this. Like My other kids were done in like an hour or two. I was still working on mine three days later because I had worn plaid shorts, and they needed to be, every line needed to be in there, and all the details, the artwork had to be perfect.
0: And what's the worry if it's not perfect?
1: You know, and it's funny because I don't necessarily know that it's always for other people as much as it is if I'm not deep into this and trying to make it the best it can be. The longer I'm deep in it and working on it, then I don't have to go back to thinking about the other things that make me feel uncomfortable. Mm. It's kind of this, like, I have a task. I have structured play. I have to do this really well.
0: And I'm confident that I can actually make it perfect. Oh, yeah. So if it, it, this is a zone that um, I, I can control the outcome.
1: Yes, yes. I think that was, and then when I would go, when I would be done with something, I would always procrastinate turning things in because I didn't want to be done with it because I think then I went back to, like, maybe kind of an existential crisis of, like, what am I doing here? Like, what's the point of all this? Interesting. You know, I was really into that drawing or that paper, and now I have to go back to this space where I don't really know what I'm supposed to be doing.
0: I'm going to tell you, yeah. So, procrastinate because if I finish this task... That I'm, yeah. Uh, parentheses, that I'm trying to be perfect at, I will have to face, what?
1: Going back to not knowing what I'm doing.
0: Going back to not knowing what I'm doing. That's interesting.
1: So I think that's always been kind of a existential thing for me. Hmm. I forget that there isn't a point to most things when I'm really deep in them. Yeah. But I also do want, you know, I think that was the other thing is there was so much, like, self-worth stuff. When I was young, I didn't feel that I was loved enough. My dad, in particular, it was just really hard to ever get.
0: Right. So is it, that part and, of it, too, of just, like, if yeah. I'm perfect, I'll get love? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Or I'll show you. You know, that was the other thing is growing up, my uncles in particular, my uncle, one of them, and my dad, mostly this uncle, though, would be like, why even bother going to school? You're just going to be pregnant and taking, you just should run a daycare and have a lot of babies and you don't need education because you're not going to be anyone. And I would like fight that narrative as a kid. I was like really scrappy. I was kind of a tomboy. And I'd be like, oh, I'll show you, you know, <laughs> like I can, I can do stuff. Like I would get really mad about it. Yeah. And so now there is this kind of like, I can, I can do stuff. I have to prove it to myself.
0: Proving something to yourself.
1: I've always competed against myself more than anyone else.
0: What does that feel like? Like, do you f- consciously feel ending. that? Like, <laughs> like, it's just like, I can do better than that. i I should be able to do better than that or
1: yeah i guess i mean i I love decorating too like my home is one area where i've been kind of taking pause and like looking at how i interact with that space you know i'll paint something or put a new pillow here which is which is great but does it
0: create any dysfunction for you yeah
1: like i obsess over it okay like Sometimes I'll be in stores for hours looking at things. Right. So that's
0: that's going back again to if people are having a hard time sort of drawing that line is there's nothing wrong with being super obsessed with your home. There's nothing wrong with being very good at school. There's nothing wrong with putting a lot of effort into a task to try to make it quote unquote perfect. There is something uh, dysfunctional or you know, harmful to you if it is a compulsion, if it's something that... There is no flexibility around, and it's not necessarily something you want to be doing. Like, I, I bet, Christy, for you, it's like you would like to spend time thinking about decorating, mm-hmm. but you wouldn't like it to uh, occupy as much sort of anxiety space that as it does.
1: Yeah. I think there is a lot of, like, yeah, I would like it not to occupy as much anxiety. Yeah. I think there's also, like, for me, I, I really long for for community and connection, and I'm always trying to make my home a place where people will want to come. mm you know, and be there, and I want to host, I want to have that, but no matter how big of a kitchen table I get, or if I even go out and buy the sectional sofa, I've been hunting for a while.
0: Doesn't necessarily...
1: Will people show up, I don't know, you know, like, I try to make it, and I think I also have a little bit of, like, a class jumping thing in that, like, we were so poor growing up, it, I was longed for a lot of stuff, and... My mom always told me, you know, even though, you know, may, we may not have a lot of money for nice things, but we take care of the things we have. So there's this narrative of, like, make it presentable. Something about, like, being, I don't know. Mm. I I get a little too worried about it, though. Like, I can tell. I'm, I go into other people's homes, and I'm like, this is, like, a nice lived-in home. And I feel like I'm kind of going overboard trying to make mine some kind of West Elm culture. Well,
0: and you're searching your needs. Like in the moment, it feels like you're meeting your needs by spending a lot of time trying to figure out how to decorate your place. But then you start to reflect on it and you think, well wait, what are my needs? What what needs are enacting themselves with my decorations?
1: Right. And that's this is like the perfect example for for the rain that Tara Brock talks about, like recognize recognize um allow, investigate, and nurture. And if I were to go through that, I would say, okay, I'm recognizing that I'm having some desire to super decorate my apartment. I'm going to allow myself to also notice that I do this with some level of anxiety that doesn't feel really good, and it's also extremely time-consuming sometimes. Um, And then if I investigate, to be honest, what it is is loneliness you know, I really, really want to have people be in my life and be in my home. And as I've gotten older, I mean, I have nice friends, but everybody's busy. And it's again, back to the emotional deprivation thing. It's like, I'll see you for brunch once a month, or I'll see another person for a couple hours on a Thursday night. But there's no family. There's nobody who lives in that house. There's no continuity. And I'm, tr- I'm really wanting to cr- kind of create the foundation for that to occur Mm. but i am kind of shooting myself in the foot by spending so much time trying to set it up rather than maybe like spending more time with the discomfort of recognizing i'm a little more lonely than i'd like to be and then use that energy to meet people or something
0: right is to notice like uh my real need here is not to have a fancy house no it's to have human connection.
1: Yeah, and if I can like make this nice enough that people would want to come over. I see my brother do this too. He's I I've been like, oh, what are we doing? And I think it's also cultural. Like I, I feel a little bit of embarrassment admitting loneliness. But I think a lot of people are in that realistically, a lot of people in our world right now, because of technology and how oh, fast yeah. life moves and lots yeah. of different reasons where not as connected with community right. as we'd like to be.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, you and I are old enough to remember a, a different time, at least in oh, yeah. Western society, when families were bigger. There weren't. There was one television. There was one telephone. Mm-hmm. You um, didn't travel as much. You didn't have Uber. Mm -hmm. people didn't really go out, (laughs) you know, Mm -mm. like people stayed home and they stayed in their neighborhood and they, like when I think back to the way my parents lived when I was young, they, we, we went to church every Sunday and they, they saw the exact same people. And it was a small church. It was Mm -hmm. a tiny little church. Um, My dad worked with the same people every day at Boeing. My mom saw that my mom had a daycare. We saw the same people every day. Yeah. Um, We had, I had, there were four kids in my family. Mm -hmm. So there's six people at home. Six of us ate dinner every night at exactly Mm -hmm. the same time. Wow, yeah. 5.15 when my (laughs) dad got home, you know, it's pretty much dinner right away. Uh, There, you know, Atari was around, but it's in the living room. Um, you know, and we kind of had an open plan where basically, Mm. um, my parents were always sort of, you know, you Mm -hmm. you couldn't close the door to the living room, right? And uh, none of us noticed, you know, it wasn't like I was like, I want to play in my own room, like, I I would have liked to, sure, but it just wasn't possible, and I didn't think anything of it. Like, imagine today, Mm. the you know, 12 year olds, um, they're their only TV is in the living room and their only Xbox is in the living room. And they only get on their phone in front of their parents where they can actually see what's on their screen. Mm, <laughs> you know mm-hmm, what I mean? Mm-mm. Like it didn't feel like my, my p- privacy was invaded. Um, but I was in my siblings and everyone else. We were in constant contact with other people yeah. getting our needs met for uh, closeness and nurturance and play and, back and forth and you know things didn't always go well i mean (laughs) i was a dick uh uh, my siblings were dicks sometimes i mean we had this this pecking order of farting on each other that was basically just based on how big you were i mean that wasn't pleasant Um, my little brother essentially got farted on by everybody (laughs) <laughs> um until he learned that if he farted back we would get off of him. He learned how to fart on command and so then oh. th- then he uh managed to like uh, that was his that was his secret weapon That's like awesome. when he was being held down and being tickled, it's like he would just fart and you'd run. Oh. Um but anyway, so you know, it wasn't like it was all fun and games. There were, you know, there were some bad moments. But but the environment was more natural because you could imagine that right. was more similar to the way we lived uh, uh, fifty thousand years ago.
1: I miss that,
0: where there was a hut and there was a village, and mm-hmm. uh, you just just natural. It's just like mm-hmm. you're around your family. Um, it's not you know. Sometimes you'd love privacy, but you know you just right. don't really get today. Um, you know, uh, moms in her uh, she shed, and <laughs> dads in the man closet man cave <laughs> uh teenage boys in the bedroom yep. playing uh Xbox yeah. teenage girls in her uh bedroom on Snapchat
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, and never the twain shall meet and mm-hmm. uh if you asked anyone are you doing what you want to they'd say yeah and they'd be like well how about if everyone hung out in the living room did this in the same room they'd be like that sounds horrible right um You know, I I don't want to be around my kids when they're they're on Snapchat. Um, I want to work on my pottery by myself. Mm. I want to look at my, you know, websites about cars and stuff alone. I don't want people in my space. It feels like it's what we want to do, but it is not what we need no no no
2: just like it feels
0: good to eat a bag of doritos yeah it's not what we need
1: Mm -mm. um
0: it just because it feels good doesn't mean it's it's good for the soul
1: and that and i i've been identifying places in my life where i've been using those band-aids the the bag of doritos right or that i want to do the pottery alone situation like i'm doing tv free september this month Hmm. And it nothing highlights being single and living alone more than not turning the TV on for a whole month
0: It's like no Netflix
1: <laughs> no wow. no Netflix, no TV not on yeah at all
0: right right, so when you do that, I, I suspect what ends up happening is just like, well, what am I going to do
1: right it starts to uh it's it's starting to
0: I'll go outside start change yeah I'll just call someone
1: yeah, call someone. Um, like this week, actually, I'm doing a bunch of stuff and like got some people together. We're going to go line dance, take line dancing classes tonight because I've always wanted to learn how to do that. But I'm trying really hard to like recognize the areas in my life where I'm putting a band aid on, whether it's decorating or watching TV and, and make room and kind of make myself uncomfortable push outside of that
0: right all of this work is a practice in discomfort within tolerant limits intolerable mm-hmm. limits um like i said when you're switching from zero percent paying attention to yourself to three percent it's yeah. going to be uncomfortable oh, so
1: uncomfortable. that's why kevin was so helpful right <laughs> honestly.
0: but it wasn't like kevin was all fun and games there were moments i'm guessing where you're just like well kevin says that he doesn't want to go to this thing yeah um it's very uncomfortable for me to actually like do assert it. my Kevin Ugh. with these people, but I'm gonna do it.
1: And I know? would even be kind of maybe over explanation to my friends. I would be like, "I'm trying to say no." Yeah.
0: Or so there's this person in me called Kevin. Yeah. <laughs> and he has cargo shorts and a t-shirt. Um, so
1: he says no. He says no.
0: My Does friend makes sense to you.
1: <laughs> my friend Jill was like. I just want to check in. You know, Kevin is fictitious, right? And I was like, yes, I know. I know this. I'm like, I'm actually joking. But ironically, not ironically, but interesting. My friend um, Mimi, who suggested that inner her teenage boy, um, it's been years now. And I told her about that. I named him Kevin last year at Christmas. I got a, a necklace with like a little K. <laughs> so I wear my Kevin necklace sometimes
0: kevin would never wear a necklace like that
1: yeah kevin be like god so becky so so basic
0: (laughs) (laughs) so what's this been like for you christy to uh, Um, talk about all this stuff
1: really cool i was a little nervous but really cool yeah i've got one thought that i want to share If, Mm -hmm. if this when you ask what's this been like does that mean we're starting to wrap up yeah okay I have one thought that I want to share that I think is interesting in regards to getting out of a schema um, that I didn't know helped me back in the day when I was kind of getting out of the it's a scary world schema Um, and it was a fairy tale as a kid I used to read a lot of fairy tales and even as an adult I actually brought my fairy tale book you can see it's pretty tattered Hmm. I love this book. But there's a fairy tale in here called The Day Boy and the Night Girl. And I'll just talk about the night girl part, because that's the part about changing the schema. And um, real quick, it's, uh, there was a witch, and she'd um, put this girl that was born in the basement in a dungeon, and she was never to know what the light of day was like. She was, and She never knew. She didn't know that there was more than what she was seeing in this dark dungeon. There was a woman who would come and bring her food and there was there was this one lantern. It was kind of dim, but it, it worked. And that was the only light she'd ever really seen. And um, then one night, the woman who usually would come and sometimes that woman would read to her, even though she wasn't supposed to be getting educated. Um, and she would hear about things like the sun and the moon and the outdoors. And so her mind was really curious. So, so there's something, but... I guess I've only known this dark space so this is what it is, right? Um and then one night the woman didn't come and something happened to the lamp and it fell and broke. So it was a disastrous cuz she was just completely in the dark. I think this is where trauma, you know, in my mind this is a story of that's the trauma part of it. Um and so she starts kind of feeling around. She's like, I think when that woman comes and goes, she goes behind this curtain here. And she was like, but I don't know. I mean, if she leaves, there must be somewhere she's going. And so she gets through this curtain, and then she's in pitch black. But there was a firefly that flew um, up to her. And so she started following this little blinking light, the small light that the firefly had. And it led her through a maze. And the whole time she was in the dungeon, that maze led right outside. She didn't know that she wasn't locked in there. Uh, And she followed that light out, and then she saw the moon. And the first time she saw the moon, she was like, Oh, my God, it's the big lantern, you know. She's really into this light. But for me, I like this story because it's kind of how I feel about changing your narrative, changing your schema, changing the way you see the world. And what, what do we need to do that? You know, like, if she had been stuck in her schema, she would have just stayed in that dungeon. She needed a little education that there might be something different, right? And then she needed a catalyst to make her go searching, And then she needed a little bit of help, somebody lighting the way, whether that's her own internal curiosity or some kind of mentor. But I love the idea that we're not actually locked into what we think we're locked into. You can get out. You don't have to live believing that the world is always a dangerous place. You don't have to live believing that you're defective and shameful you don't have to live subjugating yourself to other people. But we learn these things so, so deeply for so long. And if that's all we've ever known, it's hard to imagine it being different. Um, I don't know. I like the firefly.
0: Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. And I can't think of a better way to end this um, deep conversation. So. Thanks for joining us out there. If you want to say anything to Christy, feel free to message me and I will pass along to Christy. Uh, I'm sure lots of people will um, have things to say. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, hopefully you out there can not only be the firefly for others, but also Mm -hmm. find your own firefly to lead you out to the great big lantern in the sky. It's much better out there.
1: It is much better out there. And the other thing I always think is I took the light from, if, it, if this was me, you have to take the light and put it inside of yourself. Mm. That's why I want to be a therapist, because I found my way out of many things. I'm probably still trapped in some, <laughs> of course. But I've tried to have the light in there okay. so that I can shine it for somebody else. Yeah. And I can say, hey, just hold the possibility that there's another way to be. Mm.
0: Best. Well, that is it for that episode. Thanks for joining me, Christy, and thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself because you know that you deserve it. Right, Christy?
1: Right. <laughs>